aren't TV movies fun? Join Amanda, Dan, and Nate as they discuss their favorite made-for-TV movies on the Made-for-TV Mayhem Show. Welcome back to the Made for TV Mayhem show. We're super happy to be here. I think we haven't been gone that long. I can't remember when we last recorded, but it was a few months ago. We took a look at Curtis Harrington, who is this director that did a lot of wonderful TV movies. And now we're doing it again. We, we went ahead and we picked a double from another director named David Green, and we brought on a special guest, uh, Bill Ackerman. Hey, Bill, what's up? Hey, thanks for having me back. I don't think we've spoken since John Llewellyn Moxie many years yes. ago. Yeah, it was a while ago now. Yeah, I guess I bring you on for all the directors. And so before we get to you, Bill, I want to just introduce my other castmates. Uh, Dan, how's it going? Good, good. How how are you going? You sound nice today, Amanda. You you feeling all right? Yeah, I sound totally congested and I'm embarrassed. But if, <laughs> I if got I, some allergy troubles here, yeah, too. If I take something for my allergies, it'll knock me out. And mm. I, I guess I'd rather be congested than not know where I am. Oh, we love it. You know what I mean? So I have to I had to pick the lesser of two evils. And we're also joined here by Nate. Hey Nate, what's up? Hey, not much. Excited for our first uh podcast of twenty twenty three. Yeah, I am too. I'm really hoping to be more consistent this year. Not that I'm expecting our schedules to get better. We're all very busy people, Bill included, and I feel like I've been thinking a lot about this. We've been podcasting for a while, but like the, the further we go into our lives, the more hectic they seem to become for good and bad reasons. And, and we haven't really been able to be as consistent as I like. But I feel really motivated this year to, to really like upgrade the podcast. I've been looking at different servers and hopefully when this goes online, it will be through a new better server where we can reach more people. And also, um, I just like talking to you guys and I love talking about TV movies and I've missed this a lot. Um, it's so much better than doing commentaries. It's just way more laid back and it's fun and and you don't have to worry about what you say and things like that. And so I'm really excited to talk about the two films that are on tap tonight. So again, we're talking about um, David Green. Now, David Green, and I'll go into a little bio here before I, I go to Bill and talk to him. Bill has watched a lot of David Green films, which is why he's here. And we will talk about that. But um, the two movies that I chose tonight are um, a movie from 1972 called Madam Sin and another one from 1983 called Prototype. They couldn't be more different from each other. Um, I don't know that I've ever seen a director make two films so wildly diverse like this for television, even though most TV directors or TV movie directors are journeymen. I really feel like David Green puts everybody else to shame in the kind of films that he kind of tackled. But at the same time, there are common threads to a lot of his films, and we can talk about that too. But let me just give you a little bit of background on David Green, and then we'll just dive into um, the movies. So... 
As I was talking about, a few filmmakers have really enjoyed a career as wide and varied and diverse as David Green. So he was born in Manchester, England in 1921, which means he'd be over 100 if he was still with us, which blows my mind. Um, he began his career as an actor, um, and after actually he wanted to be a journalist first, and then he became an actor. And he made his on-screen, on-screen debut in 1948 in Daughter of Darkness. And then he worked steadily as an actor for the next four years before um, kind of retiring from that life um, in front of the camera in 1952. Now he did do, um, I don't know why it's not here in my notes, but he did a play, I think it was an Anthony and Cleopatra with Laurence Olivier and he was going around America and he kind of fell in love with the country. Um, but he ended up moving to Canada to get his citizenship there. And he ended up working on um, a lot of stuff. Um, his directorial debut was actually a playbill. The episode was titled The Disenfranchised Fans. And so what begins is a fairly straightforward career in episodic television, maybe peaking in 1962 with the Twilight Zone entry, a piano in the house. Uh, he, he sort of uh, t- took his career in a bunch of unexpected turns. He ended up making some films for the big screen after starting off on TV. So he did things including um, The Shuttered Room, which was his theatrical film debut, which is, of course, based off, I don't know, is it August or Lith? Or H.P. Lovecraft, or both, that wrote that story. But I kind of want to say it could be both. Yeah, I feel I like Derleth used August the notes. Used... Yeah, August yeah. Derleth used the notes, and then, mm-hmm. and then David Green made this really crazy film that I love um, uh, with Carol Lindley and um, Oliver Reed, I think. And mm-hmm. uh, he also did the musical Godspell, and he did. Um, a really interesting British thriller titled I Start Counting. He did a couple other films, but he wasn't really getting a lot of attention for that. So he ended up doing uh, TV again and he kind of flourished there. He would end up carving out a niche for himself as one of the most reliable and talented TV movie directors in the business. Um, He would end up working in all three countries, England, Canada, as I mentioned earlier, and the United States. So his last film would be The Girl Next Door in 1998. Um, And it's not my favorite of his films, but in between doing that and his and his debut as a director on the Playbill episode, I feel like there's just such a really immense legacy. I mean, you can't really cover it in one episode. Uh, there was no genre that he couldn't tackle. Um, he did musicals, miniseries, true crime, thrillers, and everything came out really well. I mean, he just was really good at everything he did. He would go on to win Emmys for Roots, Rich Man, Poor Man, two miniseries that are great, um, as well as I think the... TV adaptation of The People Next Door and Friendly Fire, which was a drama he did with Carol Burnett. Um, He was nominated for his work on the miniseries Fatal Vision, which, by the way, Kino Lorber just announced is going to be coming out on Blu-ray. That's an amazing film. Um, He worked a lot with Richard Levinson and William Link, who um, were the two guys who created Columbo. He did a lot of mysteries with them. Um, He did an Ellery Queen episode, at least one episode that I can think of. Of course, I don't know the name of it. I didn't write it down. He did Rehearsal for Murder. He did one of the movies we're talking about tonight, Prototype. He did something called The Guardian from 1984, Guilty Conscience, which I think starred Anthony Hopkins, and Vanishing Act in 1986, which starred Margot Kidder, Elliot Gould, and Mike Farrell. So when... Green recounted his path to directing. He told Richard Levinson and William Link for the book Off Camera that, quote, whenever I speak at film schools or universities, the question they always ask is, how do you become a director? And of course, the answer is, speaking for myself, that I did it through a whole series of accidents, mistakes, lies, and bluffs. I didn't realize I was training to be a director when I spent three or four years as a journalist on the streets. 
Uh, when I spent a year and a half at art school studying painting and composition, I didn't realize I was learning to be a director. And when I became an actor for 10 years, I still didn't know I was learning to be a director. But once I started to direct, I realized that all of these experiences had equipped me to be a director. And indeed, it felt like that was what I was born to do, end quote. So in retrospect, his experiences with writing, research, art, and the performing arts, of course, were um, kind of the makings of a perfect storm. Um, in that same interview with Levinson and Link, the director spoke about the endless amount of research um, he would employ when working on a production, as well as he was able to eke out some of the best performances his actors ever gave. So a good example would be a theatrical I didn't mention was um, Hard Country, which starred Jan Michael Vincent and um, Kim Basinger. Uh, and Jim Michael Vincent's a great actor, but I really feel like his performance in Hard Country, as well as Kim Basinger's, are just off the charts amazing. Um, but his TV movie work is phenomenal. It's super prolific. And I think some of my personal favorite uh, green TV movies would probably be the pilot for Lucan, which Dan and I just talked about recently for his podcast, Eventually Super Train. Um, he did this amazingly weird TV movie that I almost picked for tonight called A Vacation in Hell. Uh, that I love. It's weird. It's weird. I love it. Um, he did uh, that thriller with Levinson and Link rehearsal for murder, which I think is wonderful. And of course, Fatal Vision is one of my favorites. Um, so again, we chose two wildly diverse films, uh, but I kind of think that this encompasses Green's overall career. Um, and we can discuss this as we go along. So I brought Bill on here because Bill did a commentary for um, the theatrical release of The People Next Door. And um, when he got hired to do that, he ended up kind of digging into Green's career. And um, I don't really have any questions for you, Bill, but I'd like you to kind of like talk about, uh, were you familiar with Green before this? And, and what did you find when you were researching for your um, commentary? Um, before I started researching it, I really only knew the people next door and I start counting and Godspell, I think. I don't think I really knew his TV work. I mean, I was aware of Roots and rich man, poor man, and um, maybe one other one. But I, I really kind of knew him more for the theatrical films. And uh, so I, I I did a deeper dive into his TV work because I think the people next door, like all of his theatrical films, uh, I think are all quite good, but I don't think any of them were particularly successful compared to his television work. I mean, his theatrical films, I think Godspell is the only one that, I think a lot of people would know, and I think it was maybe a slight disappointment compared to like Jesus Christ Superstar or things like that. It was not like a huge hit. Like I think the show, the stage show was probably a bigger deal. Um, but People Next Door kind of sets him up for the kind of stories he really excels at with the made for TV, like the um, like the social issue TV movies. Because what's interesting about him is that, uh, like, like as you said, he uh, when he came over to uh, the United States, with Laurence Olivier as part of that theatrical company. And then they crossed the border into Canada and he just stayed there to work in Canadian TV and became like one of the biggest directors in Canadian television when it was still kind of, I guess, a growing industry. And then, so he then went to New York, like with a whole lot of uh, prestige from his Canadian years, uh, you know, as, as a director. So that when he went to New York in I think 56, like he went quickly into like winning an Emmy for 12th night. And then, um, you know, really kind of excelling in that golden age of television, like TV dramas, like, and I think that he, I think, I think as TV started moving more towards the sitcom and more towards California based productions, he was getting frustrated with like his creative opportunities. And so then he goes into theatricals, um, like you mentioned the shuttered room, but he also does, um, 
Sebastian and the Strange Affair. Like he goes into like UK uh, theatricals at a time when like that swinging London thing was starting to kick off. And, you know, directors like Richard Lester and Ken Russell and uh, John Schlesinger. So he 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 catches up with his, you know, his old countrymen like in, in that industry, but then comes back to do the people next door for TV um, for the uh, CBS Playhouse. And that wins him another Emmy. Uh, and that's a really big TV show like or TV special. I, I actually just saw it for the first time last year at the Paley Center. It was like, you know, it's impossible to see it. I don't think it's on the gray market, but uh, it's amazing, you know, to see what he can do, like with just a small scale kind of production. But then he goes back to the UK to do I Start Counting, um, which uh, I don't know if you mentioned this, but you do the liner notes for the, uh, the Blu-ray for that, <laughs> uh, which are great. And um then comes back to do the people next door for for theatrical and uh it's kind of a flop and so the first major thing he directs after that is madam sin the first film we're going to be talking about um which i guess was meant to be it's it's odd because it kind of is at the crossroads i think it maybe opened theatrically in the uk but was kind of like a tv pilot here i I don't know if is that is that how it worked i believe so yeah i have some box office grosses from when it played in england so yeah but i i think like you know I mean, when we talk about like directors when it comes to uh, made for television, I mean, I, I think we've talked about this before, like how it's you know more of a journeyman field and it's kind of hard to talk about a lot of directors um, in terms of like, you know, uh, recurring themes or imagery. I think they're kind of usually at the mercy of showrunners and the screenplays and just, you know, doing the best job for whatever material they come come upon. But the um, the David Green TV movies, there's so many that have recurring themes of um, like uh, the horror of parents losing their child or uh, a children, uh, child's desire for new experiences leading to conflict. Like there's a whole lot of stories that deal with like a family, uh, a family trauma theme. I mean, prototype gets into this yes. um, and we can touch on other ones too, but it, it's, it's funny to actually spot. And I, I, I've never heard him talk about, I've actually not come across that many interviews with David Green. So I don't know how much, that's him choosing projects that kind of align with those themes or if it's just you know how television was working at the time that he was so prolific but um it's you can find a a greater through line in his tv work than in his theatrical work which is a lot more to my mind a lot more journeyman like than the tv work yeah i think it like i guess to kind of think about whether or not he was choosing these for himself you could probably look at his producing credits. Sometimes I go, I have to go by that because you're right. There's not a lot of information. And what's interesting is something Dan and I talked about, like for the pilot for Lucan, that you wouldn't think would have anything to do with families, but it's really about building families wherever Lucan. I mean, that's what the premise of the series is. And also the relationship he has with the professor that raises him. He's a feral child, right? And he's brought to this university for those who haven't seen the series. And, um, and you can kind of see where like, he did that, you know, almost seven years after I start counting. But for me, that like is one of the bases of like something he would explore a lot in the TV movie. But I'm looking at his um, producing credits and it's not so much centered on family. So I would think that maybe he was just given a lot of that stuff because he was good at it. Cause he, you know, he did true crime and like, and even in true crime, they're, they're based in families, you know, like fatal vision is a good example of that. Um, and, um, and so you're asking a really provocative question because, yeah, I have, the only time I've ever seen David Green actually speak was on like a episode of This Is Your Life. 
in England where he was a guest and I can't even remember who the who he was there for and he he was so mild-mannered which I wasn't expecting because I'm under the impression that he was married like seven times and now I can't seem to prove that but yeah, he um, was. Yeah, yeah and uh, uh, I met one of his ex-wives once actually um, at uh, B. Arthur's one woman show and and I said I love your husband and she or I love your ex-husband she said she'd been married to David Green and she said I love him too and apparently um, I think his ex-wives actually stayed friendly with him. Um, and, and I was expecting when you look at his IMDb picture, it's like, he's got this hat and this beard and I'm picturing this kind of crazy British guy. Yeah. I interviewed Deborah Winters, uh, who is in both versions of people next door. And she's also in, um, Tarantula's the deadly cargo, I think. Yes. And, and she, uh, she told me that he was really, uh, like a flamboyant Englishman was how she described him. So like a big personality. So it's interesting to hear that he was kind of soft-spoken in the interview you saw. Yeah, I was. So that's how I had to mention him because I was picturing him like the way she describes him. And um, we should mention Deborah Winters is also in The Outing, which is like the best horror movie nobody ever talks about. So um, which she produced, I think. And um, mm. anyway, um, yeah. So so to hear her say that aligns more with like my image of him. But yeah, like a lot of TV movie directors don't get any note. They don't get the interviews. They don't get as documented as they should. And so um, I haven't read off camera in a long time, but it's my understanding that uh, Levinson and Link actually set out to talk to directors and they wrote a couple of books. I feel like there's another one that the title is totally um, not in my brain right now. Uh, but um, where they would set out and talk to like these TV movie directors and talk about their work because who else was doing it, right? Nobody. And um, and so that's probably where you're going to get your best information. But even then, I can't remember if he said he was drawn to these things. So that's a really provocative question. But anyway, I didn't mean to, to uh, interrupt. Well, no, no. I mean, that's that's that was just kind of what I, I mean, I had to say. I mean, yeah, just that uh, you mentioned true crime, and I think he also... Uh, yeah, he he excelled at biographical stories and also um, quite a few remakes of theatrical films. I think are on the resume as well. But uh, oh, that's right, he did Night of the Hunter, which I really liked, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, yeah. also really good. Yeah, and I just, I mean, I just think that so many of the family stories, whether it's Friendly Fire or um, uh, Circle of Violence, Child Is Mine. Um, you know, our, our prototype, especially, um, yeah. are all really just interesting, well-written, uh, lean kind of films. But I, I, I think people would also, you know, I, I think more people that would have seen the, um, the, uh, the first episode of Roots that he directed. I think more yeah. than anything else he directed, and that's also a family story. And again, like that child's desire for new experience, you know, creates this uh, horrific scenario, you know, uh, for for them. So it's just. I don't know. It's I, maybe it is just they they saw him being really strong at those kind of stories, and so they gave him those kind of scripts to it uh, to televise. But um, I don't know. I mean, there's there's quite a lot that uh, it's the same as when we you know talked about John, John Llewellyn Moxie years ago. It's like he has some big theatrical work, but you do the deep dive in his TV movies, and it's just all really consistently entertaining. Yeah, yeah. It's unfortunate that like. Um... John Newland, who did Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, you know, so he owned a production company and then he made TV movies. So you, it's so much easier to connect the dots to his interests. But so many of these directors, they just go from job to job. And like they're so underrated in terms of how we talk about them, because I feel like the term journeyman sometimes it discounts talent. You know, like they just are get shoved into like a production and they're and they're competent at it is sometimes the word I see in the description. And I think that that's unfair because you have to be more than competent to make these kinds of movies as consistently good, especially when you're making like three, four movies a year. You know, he did Roots and um, Rich Man, Poor Man kind of back to back. 
And I mean, like those were huge. And mm. so like, and I know he, he worked with different directors on Roots. I think Richman Poorman might've been all him. I can't remember, but, uh, but like to be able to like pull that together, those are two way different kind of stories and, and, and make them what they were, which were these Emmy nominated giant box, uh, not box office, but huge rating successes. I mean, that's really impressive. And so, um, so of the directors we've talked about, I think Green, maybe John Newland. I'm becoming this huge John Newland addict, but um, I think David Green is one of the more compelling ones I've come across, and I love them all. But like, it's just his. I'm looking at his filmography right now while you're talking, and you're throwing out all these titles, and it's like God. I like I've seen maybe a third of his films, and I think that's a lot of TV movies, but it's not even close to touching what he did, you know, in his career. So. And I forgot about the remakes. I really, really liked Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. I remember that being pretty good. Um, and uh, yeah, he could pretty much do anything. He did another weird movie too called The Penthouse with I think Robin Givens. Maybe Robert Guillaume. I can't remember. I watched a bunch of his stuff when I was doing the I Start Counting liner notes. And it's hard to remember all the storylines. But yeah, really, really amazing filmmaker. So tell me, since you watch so much of his stuff, what films of his stick out to you the most? Um, I mean, well, I have a very sentimental attachment to the People Next Door theatrical sure. version, and I Start Counting uh, was also in Godspell. But I, I think for the TV, I think Prototype is maybe my favorite. But yeah. I love uh, Friendly Fire and uh, This Child is Mine and Circle of Violence. I haven't seen uh, Rich Man, Poor Man all the way through. I started watching its, you know, miniseries. But what I saw of it was, like, amazing. Oh, it's so amazing, I, I, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I bought it. I just, I mean, it just... I mean, you know how it is with schedule, like trying to find time for an entire miniseries. But <laughs> what I saw of it was just maybe the best, maybe the best directed thing I saw of his. But, yeah. um, you know, and, I, and it's rightfully famous, for, I guess. But, uh, yeah, I think even The Strange Affair, the British, uh, all the early British films are all really good. I mean, Shattered Room. That's great. Um, yeah. It's one of my yeah. favorites. Yeah. I mean, I, I've not seen anything I haven't liked from him, put it that way. So let's talk just briefly about Friendly Fire. Now, Dan, did, did have you seen that? No, okay. I almost did. I almost <laughs> did, but I did I was going to have us watch it, and then I changed to Madamson because I wanted to have movies that were really crazy different from each other. But I know Nate and Bill have seen it, and I actually haven't seen it. I'm kind of afraid to watch it. Those kind of movies really upset me. Um, I'm just curious what your thoughts are, Nate. I'll start with you on Friendly Fire. So just in short, I believe it's about um, a couple who are trying to seek justice for their child being murdered or, or killed um, in like, I think what is, you know, friendly fire, like from their own side of the war, right? Is it a Vietnam story? And, um, and it's, I think it was a big deal because Carol Burnett starred in it. It's on Tubi. I'm ashamed I haven't seen it, but, uh, I know Nate watched it recently when we were prepping for this and I'm just curious what you thought of it. Um, and I guess for me, like, um, it's probably not my kind of movie, um, I, I, but, but that's not to say it's not a good film because it is. And Carol Burnett is, uh, one, I'm so sorry about that. My dog, dog just fine. chose right now <laughs> while I'm talking to come in here and shake. Um, but, um, it's, it's interesting seeing Carol Burnett, which I have seen her done, you know, more serious roles before, but I always just like seeing her cause I think she's so funny and hysterical and seeing her when she's like playing, you know, a more serious role like this is very interesting for me. And I like that. And, um, the movie itself, you know, it's it, it's a good movie. Um, I did read up a little bit on the true story. I always am kind of curious about how close they follow the true yeah. story. You know, I always get really curious about that. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and you got the plot description, you know, pretty much right. And I feel like even the title, Friendly Fire, kind of just tells you what happened. Sure. It's more about, um, you know, just finding that out and then, you know, what happens, you know, from that and, and things like that. But, yeah, it's um, it, it was a very interesting film. And um, I'm actually... Uh, I'm definitely glad I watched it. It probably won't be something I rewatch, but that's not that it's a bad movie. It's just that it's kind of sad. Yeah, that's kind of when we prototype destroyed me the first time I saw it. Like I had to take a three hour like break and watch like used cars or something like that to like get my mind off it. But um, so I sometimes if I think a movie's going to like really hit me emotionally, I just tend to avoid it sometimes depending on where I am and friendly fire. I didn't suit me at this point. Um, uh, Bill, you know, you've seen it as well, right? So what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen it in a few years. My memory of it was that it, it, it kind of, you could compare it to something like Ordinary People and that it's like um, Carol Burnett and Mary Tyler Moore both kind of doing kind of a kind of a heavier dramatic part. If you know them primarily for like light comedic kind of television work, it's kind of a kind of a, a great showcase for like their dramatic chops. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it, it aligns with the themes of just um, like the horror of losing a child. I mean, but done in a true crime kind of way. I haven't seen Fatal Vision, but I feel like it might be similar in that it it opens with um, it, it basically it's, it's like looking into the tr tragic death of family members or family. Um, so it kind of like is an investigative kind of narrative. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. I don't know if that's the entirety of Fatal Vision. But I, I know it opens with like the, the a murder that is kind of investigated. It's like a family setting. Um, but yeah, no, um, Friendly Fire. I mean, I can see why it would have been a big ratings, uh, ratings uh, success. I and mean, I guess it was, you know, one of those early, earlier films to deal with the Vietnam critically in a, in a, in a sure. mainstream context. I'm trying to think when it comes in relation to Platoon. Oh, I think it predates it because it was 1979. Platoon was the 80s. Yeah, so it would have been yeah, 86. Yeah, I know. I know Platoon's 86. So it's 79s when Friendly Fire yeah. comes out. So it's the same year as like um, Apocalypse Now. It's right after Coming Home. So it's like right when films are starting to uh, raise questions about Vietnam, yeah. um, but in a much more, I think, much more mainstream, palatable way because it's dealing with like a very direct, you know family situation which i guess is the thing that you could t tie a lot a lot of the david green social issue tv movies is that he's using a family story to tackle like abortion or elder abuse right. or vietnam yeah. or you know like um different kind of water cooler kind of topics but yeah no, I, I i remember it being quite strong i mean like like nathan said it's not a film that i would probably rewatch a lot for fun <laughs> but right. uh but it but it's definitely strong you know strong drama yeah, it reminds me a little bit without having seen it. There's this movie now, of course, I've totally forgotten the title with um, uh, John Ritter. And it's about how they discovered uh, Agent Orange. And it's amazing. But then you get to the end and you just want to slit your wrist. You know what I mean? Because you're like, oh, my God, this is so tragic because it's about a soldier who comes back and he gets diagnosed with this really weird cancer. And then when he contacts people from his troop, he starts to find out that either they've died or they've all gotten something weird. And so he starts to investigate it and he finds this woman like in social services that's um, kind of taken a liking to him and wants to also help him figure out what's happened to these soldiers. But there's all this bureaucracy in its way. And um, and he has to weed his way through that while he's dying. And it's mm. this incredible like. It's a, na a natural causes. 
Is that might that be it. I've, I, I'm, I'm, I can't even remember because the director, um, I was, I did a commentary that the director was involved with. I can't remember now, but anyway, that's what it reminds me of. And that was like a really tough watch, even though it's a really good movie and it's very watchable. And John Ritter's of course, amazing in it. And you're talking about it normally known for his comedy, taking on a really dramatic role, which he did on television from time to time. And, um, but then it just kind of rips your heart out at the end. And then, and also it's based on a true story, like Friendly Fire. So like those kind of movies I have to like prepare myself for, you know, <laughs> like I could watch Coed Call Girls based on a true story. I could watch that over and over again. You know what I mean? But like, I don't want to watch these kinds of films, but anyway, it's on Tubi and I feel like I've just like diminished the impact of Friendly Fire and I didn't mean to, but, um, I just wanted to talk about it because we almost covered it. And I think it's a movie people might be interested in. Um, it's supposed to be an exceptional telefilm. So, but let's get started with what I guess would be David Green's, aside from Vacation Hell, this is probably his wackiest made-for-TV movie that I can think of. It's, it's I don't have another word for it. It's it's a wacky tobacco. And we um, actually, we didn't cover this on our podcast, but at the beginning of the pandemic, I used to do these live tweets where oh, yes. we would watch a movie Uh, Like every Saturday, I would pick a movie that was on like Amazon Prime and a group of us would sit down and watch it together. And then I would tweet out information about the film. And I it's crazy. It's just a crazy. It was really fun to watch with people who had never seen it because it's it goes places you're just not expecting, I think. Um, And it was produced by Robert Wagner. It's got a really interesting backstory. and We'll go into that. But Dan has the plot plot breakdown for it. So, Dan, do you want to tell us a little bit about Madam Sin and what makes her so sinful? Sure, and I just just one question earlier. You mentioned the outing, the Killer Genie movie. Yes. Oh, fun! Oh, that's Vinegar Syndrome put that out in Blu-ray. They did, and it's a it's a it's one of my favorite films. It's a lot of fun, yeah. And one thing for all you fans of my plot breakdowns, and I know there are a lot of you out there. um, (laughs) I made two uh, New Year's resolutions this year. The first one was to get a new hairstyle. Uh, 1998 was a great year for hair, but I think it's time my scalp and I grew up. And the second one is to do shorter plot breakdowns. So I'm going to do a very quick plot breakdown for Madam Sin. Uh, I've forgotten Robert Wagner's character's name. It's Lawrence, Mr. Lawrence. Uh, he, uh, Robert Wagner plays Lawrence, who's a, like an ex-CIA agent, secret agent kind of guy. And he is attacked by Denholm Elliott and a bunch of nuns with a, some sort of strange sonic device that knocks him out. And he is taken to a castle somewhere in the middle of nowhere in the UK owned by Madam Sin, basically Betty Davis. And it's Betty Davis playing more or less a Bond villain. And she has this huge castle and she has all kinds of servants and she has all kinds of businesses, some legitimate, some not. And she has scientists working on all kinds of a lot of sonic related weaponry. And also another scientist who who does a thing where he can go into your brain and diddle around with your brain and make you think whatever Matt Emson wants you to think. And through um, uh, a mix of sort of coercion and a lot of talking, Madame Sin convinces Lawrence to help her hijack a Polaris nuclear submarine. And uh, Lawrence is like a best, sort of best friends with the guy who's the commander of the submarines. And they basically come up with this big plan to, uh, I'm sure we'll go into this elaborate plan to steal a nuclear submarine for, you know, some sort of buyer that Madame Sin has on the line for a million dollars. And the first half of the movie is basically trying to convince Lawrence to join them. The second half of the movie is this plan to steal the submarine. But will Lawrence go through with it? 
So will he change his mind? Does Madame Sin get the submarine who will live to not actually return another day, but they were hoping that would happen. But that's so that's basically Madame Sin. She's this wonderful Bond-esque villain, and she recruits Robert Wagner to help steal a submarine. You know, when I was rewatching it for this podcast, my first thought was, I wonder if Michael Myers saw this when he was making Austin Powers because yeah. Robert Wagner's in that, right? And that's about mm-hmm. this like kind of groovy spy. Mm-hmm. And I wondered yeah. if there was some basis in um his inspiration that came from this film. There definitely there definitely could be. Yeah, she <laughs> she has that um she has that great sort of bordering on well, I, I don't know that she's bordering on camp. I think she walks into camp on oh, more than yeah, one occasion. Easily, yeah. But um, but but she had yeah she has that great sort of she's clearly very evil. But there are moments like her final moment in there where she <sighs> wants to take over a particular building. Uh, That's which the is best. Very, yeah, which yeah. is she's she, she's a lot of fun. And Dan O'Malley is is the perfect um, not quite her sidekick, but her main man. Her helper yeah, he's excellent. the standout to me in this. I think he's mm-hmm. just amazing. Um, but I know Dan has watched this because he sat in the live tube with me. And I know Nate mentioned that he'd seen it before. Uh, Bill, did you watch this when you were prepping for your David Green commentary? You know, I didn't. This was actually one that I had not seen before. So uh, I, it was very different from the other David Green films yeah. I'd seen. <laughs> um, but I loved it, though. It was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, it, it it almost feels like like it's operating on dream logic the way like oh, the way yeah. it begins to the way it ends it just it's a very surreal kind of espionage story i think i i didn't know anything about it going in and i didn't even realize that it was building towards betty davis being the surviving character because even in the mm. i read i did a little reading up on the press before this came out and they i mean they give away that you know uh robert wagner gets defeated by by this, uh, you know, Bond villain type character that she's playing, and that the whole premise of the show was going to be, you know, a bit centered around her. So I, I went into it thinking it was going to be closer to uh, Sebastian, the uh, the pri- like the uh, the espionage type, um, which you, you know you want to make comparisons to Austin Powers. Like this would be kind of closer to that. You know, mm. Sebastian, his uh, second theatrical film is is closer to the. Uh, that swing in 60s kind of sexy you know uh not private eye but like a special agent kind of kind of story this i was surprised uh, looking into it like it has um a bunch of behind the camera kind of ties to nick rogue films from that period yeah the cinematographer right same cinematographers things like don't look now and the man who fell to earth and also brian eatwell did the production design who did uh, like walkabout and man who fell to earth so it's got a couple of uh I mean, David Green collaborators, but also Nick Rogue collaborators, which, um, you know, I guess it, it, it makes it gives it kind of like a, an arty theatrical kind of feeling for something that I guess has a, a television kind of origin to it, even more so than like his other TV movies. Yeah, it's an interesting movie because I don't know the whole background, but I mean, I think that when they were making it, they had planned to make it an overseas theatrical film as well as a TV movie. And so, uh, but so recently I've become kind of extra obsessed with, uh, Madison kind of postdates it, but from between 1964 and 1969, there were a handful of TV movies that got released. They weren't really sure what to do with TV movies. And so they made a few of them. They're like, Hey, this could be a pilot like Madison was, um, or it could be whatever, right. They just weren't sure yet. And, and, and they did these movies that were really lush and had kind of a theatrical kind of, uh, cinematic feel to them. And 
but a lot of them were shot just in LA, which shocked me because I was doing some research on a couple of them. Like, um, there's a movie that Robert Wagner made, um, in the sixties, a TV movie called how I spent my summer vacation, which is another kind of spy thriller. It's wild. It's great. It's really colorful and fun, but it was shot in LA, but in the movie, they're all over like somewhere in Europe. Right. And it looks like Europe. And there's a movie called the smugglers, which, uh, was uh, supposed to take place in Italy, but they just shot it like the Universal Studios. But it looks like Italy to me. I thought it was shot in Italy. So um, so a lot of these movies had these really big international feeling to them. There's another one called Honeymoon with a Stranger, which I wrote about recently for Fangoria for their website, uh, with Janet Lee, where they actually went to Spain and they shot inside a castle like they did here. And those movies are so unique to me. And they're becoming more and more interesting. Um, and I've been kind of pursuing watching them more because of it. And I think Madame Sin comes sort of at the tail end of this before the TV movie really took off. And then they started making them sort of more economical and quicker. And also with like like these just smaller sets and shaved down cast and stuff. This is pretty epic for for a TV movie from the 70s, I think, after the ABC movie, the week kind of established these sort of like factory films, you know, where we just, we make one every two weeks and then we get it out. And, um, and so it's a really interesting film to me, but I think, I think somewhere down there, they were like, yeah, we can get this released in England. And when Betty Davis was over there, the press just went nuts for her, you know, being in London. And, um, and it, it actually garnered a lot of attention for a TV movie over there because it was a theatrical and because Betty Davis was attached to it. And I thought it was interesting because our last podcast, we did Curtis Harrington and he got Gloria Swanson right to be in um the killer bees and he got her to do a bunch of crazy stuff which i think she loved she put bees on herself i mean she was very bold in the film and i kind of feel like betty davis is sort of predating the gloria swanson thing this was her tv movie debut and she's going all out you know and she liked it she, this was a character she'd never really been approached to play before and she loved robert wagner they worked together on um it takes a thief i think and um and so him exec, he was the producer, executive producer on it. And David Green, which I, I didn't realize until now, was the co-writer of the screenplay. Uh, I didn't realize it's the only TV movie he ever wrote. And so maybe he was dipping into like his Sebastian roots and stuff for inspiration when he made it. But I couldn't help but think about how it felt so much like a, an inspiration for uh, Austin Powers. But so anyway, uh, Dan, tell me. Now you've seen this a couple of times. Tell me your thoughts on it. Yes. Well, then we'll go into the film proper. After we talked to Nate and you. Oh, I, I, um, yeah, I, I enjoy it. I, it, 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 it does have that thing where you, you get to the end and you think, um, boy, I, I wish I could, there was another one. I wish there was a second episode yeah. or a second movie or something because it does have that. It has, uh, it has very much like, um, a Remo Williams, the adventure begins feel to it where it spends, Remo spends a lot of time setting everything up. And then the, the sort of the, the mission that he goes on is fun but not spectacular. And that's sort of what this is like, like the thing with the, you know, kidnapping the, um, the commander, having them operate on him, bringing them back and stuff like that. It's fun, but it's not spectacular. It's, it's just kind of like, okay, this is, we, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a, it's an, it's a, it's sort of very much like a pilot. You, you get the first half is introducing us to this crazy ass world that Madame Sin lives in. And you get a lot of Ra Robert Wagner kind of, kind of flailing around because they keep zapping him with that sonic gun. And 
then you get this uh you, you get this this fantastic place she's in and i i would love i would love to have seen more of her world and what she does now we're never going to get that obviously um but uh but but as it stands i think i think the film is a lot of fun it moves very very quickly a lot of a lot of great stuff in it and um i would have liked to have seen um how a series that follows the bad guy would have done or what it would have done because like at the end of this one she says to um, Den O'Malley, she says something like, well, I never lose. <laughs> but then I thought, but you just lost a few minutes ago. You lost. So so I'm wondering if it would be something like she would lose in every episode. But then because she's a little crazy, she just kind of shake it off and pretend <laughs> like she hadn't lost or something. Yeah. Because or, or or would they do something like like gradually episode by episode, she kind of takes over the world. So, like, at the end of the first season, suddenly you realize that all the different things she's taken over, she's suddenly in control of the world. Have you ever seen Poor Devil? No. That's the That was a movie with Christopher Lee. It's a TV movie. Christopher Lee, Sammy Davis, and Jack Klugman. Oh, I know of it, yeah. Yeah, it's great. And so Sammy Davis Jr. is like this kind of devil, but he's not Satan. And Christopher Lee is Satan. And Sammy Davis has a really hard time collecting souls. And so Christopher Lee's like, look, you got to go up there and get somebody. You just have to do it and meet your quota or whatever. So he goes up and he meets Jack Klugman and they, and he's like, I'm going to steal your soul. Tell me what you want and I'll give it to you. And they devise this like weird heist. And and it was a pilot mm-hmm. for a show that was to star Sammy Davis Jr. going around collecting souls. Mm. And I was like, it, do I want to watch that every week? You know what I mean? Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's such a funny idea. So when you said yeah. that, it, it instantly made me think of that. Like, it's such a weird concept to 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 follow the bad guy i mean maybe not so now but like because there's all yeah. these tv true crime tv series where true we, yeah and stuff like that and I, I, I do i do I, I do like the thought of like maybe for the first couple she'd lose but then she like wins something maybe not something huge but like she'd accomplish something and then gradually she went along she'd start to kind of win more and more and then eventually, because a long time ago, there was a, I think in the 70s, there was a comic book called Supervillain Team-Up, and most of them starred Doctor Doom, which meant that every comic ended with Doctor Doom losing. But at the end of the comic, he actually wins and takes control of everyone in the world. Sounds... And for the whole comic, he's in charge of everyone in the world. And then at the end of it, he kind of turns all that off and says, it's nice to know that at any moment... I can take over the world again. <laughs> and then the comic ends and it's like, that's fun. That's a fun something to do. But when you have a villain as the bad guy, it's and, and it's not like a Dexter type thing, you know, where where he's the bad guy, but he's also doing other stuff. It should be, I don't know. And I don't I don't want to see something like we're at the end, like maybe um, Den O'Malley dies or something and suddenly she turns good. I don't want to see that. I want no. to see her bad all the way through and take over the world in the end. And and if she can't do it, Den O'Malley it just a usurps her and goes about yes, doing her yes. evil deeds. Yeah, that would have been that would have been really fun. Um Nate, uh what do you think of Madam Sin? I uh saw Madam Sin. It's been a while back and I think I was just really on a Betty Davis kick at the time. Sure. And I love 70s movies. I mean, uh, made for TV <laughs> and otherwise. I just I love 70s movies. So I uh, had seen it and um as always like Betty Davis is just so watchable. I love her. I love the, you know, her uh, acting and uh, especially, you know, just in this Madam Sin film. I kind of feel like if it was made today, it would be like really heavy on the CGI. Maybe it'd be a lot more action sequences, Um, which, you know, I mean, I wouldn't mind um, because I wouldn't really necessarily say this movie's boring at all because I definitely don't think that. 
Um, if anything, it gets by with just the sheer campiness of it all. And I mean, I love campy movies. I always have. So, I mean, that is what will uh, reel me in is if I think a movie is going to be especially campy. And um, this one, I mean, just reading the plot description, I was like, yeah. I mean, <laughs> one could say this movie was about Betty Davis spies. You get it? Yeah, because she's got <laughs> Betty Davis eyes. Wow, that was funny. That was a that was a joke of the week. Joke of the week. Yeah. Well, Eric's not here, so I'll I'll just give a joke of the week for made for TV mayhem. But anyway, um, no, it's uh, it's a really it's a, it's a fun film, and I think that anyone you know that's listening to this show what i think would like it because um if you if you love made for tv movies or if you have an interest in them um especially in their heyday which to me was the 70s and 80s although i won't lie i really get into some of those dramas from the 90s oh too. the 90s uh, are uh, so good don't discount the 90s ever. especially when they had soap opera actresses yes. playing in some of the made for tv movies i just it was amazing it was great but anyway i'm getting way off track here but um <laughs> No, I, I mean, yeah, just going back to summarize, uh, Madam Sin was uh, great, and I will say that um, I got a little mixed up, which is why I watched Friendly Fire. Uh, for some reason, thought <laughs> That's we were my picking fault. that instead of Madam Sin, but luckily, I have seen Madam Sin, so it all worked out. It did, it did. And I that... remembered it, you know, fairly well, it's just I didn't have any notes like I usually try to take. Yeah, I think it's interesting. When, one of the things I remember most about, because I watched Madison years ago, like it, it actually got a VHS release, probably because it had a theatrical release and had kind of a different home video maybe thing. And so it, it's had it's taken on a new life, um, which a lot of TV movies don't get the chance to do because of rights issues and things like that. And so this movie has been able to exist. And now it's streaming everywhere and it's been on VHS. Hopefully it'll be out on DVD or Blu-ray at some point because it's so beautifully made. It's such a a really lush looking film. But one of the things I remember is that it's got this really great score, but there's this part where he first gets to Madison's castle and you hear this like weird sort of discordant harp sound. And then you look over and there's actually a guy playing the harp. And you're like, oh yeah, that's where it's coming. But then he disappears, right? And it's just, it's wild. You that know? was in my notes too. Actually, just like the, the idea that like creepy experimental music would actually appear to be creepy as you watch someone performing it. Like the actual musician had to be creepy too. For yeah, <laughs> that's right. He is. Yeah, he's just like, but it's just so funny when the, when you think it's supposed to be part of the score, but it's actually just like a musician there as part of the set. You know, like, and Robert Wagner realizes he exists and the music's coming from the film and not being attached to the film later. And so it's like this really funny moment. And I, I think I, I have a real, I really struggle with camp um, because I don't think I understand what camp is. And, and I've been learning a lot about it in the last year or so um, because I always thought camp had to be self-aware, but I guess it doesn't always have to be. This film, though, I think is self-aware. And I think that, I think he is setting out to kind of set this really, over the top world. And I think that was one of the things that drew Betty Davis to it. Because if you think about like later on in her career, and I don't know that I know a lot about her later stuff, but when you look at like Wicked Stepmother, like she was really up to do anything. She was, she wanted to have fun. And I think that was her last film. And she, although I kind of like Wicked Stepmother. I love Wicked Stepmother, but it's okay. weird. Is that, is that Larry Cohen? Is that... I think yeah, it is Larry I Cohen. So. It's, yeah, yeah. it's weird. And it's, mm -hmm. it's, but she's, her, and Lionel Stander from Heart to Heart, ironically enough, let's get back to Robert Wagner, it, <laughs> is in it as well. And, um, and, 
you can tell, I mean, she looked really old at this point. She was very close to death, and I feel like she died either while they were making it or right after. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But she also looks like she's also having a pretty good time. And I think that there's something about Betty Davis in this part of her career where she's looking to have a good time in some of these roles, not all of them, but in some of them, she's like, this is really crazy. And I'm in like almost every scene and I get to be super over the top and I get to be this like larger than life, really strong female character, you know, and, um, and I also get to wear these fabulous outfits and all this blue eyeshadow, which I, I had some with. fun wicked stepmother trivia for you. Oh Yeah. <laughs> The um, I want to hear it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, My, Michael Michael Greer from Messiah of Evil, the uh, the male lead who has that kind of Peter Fonda ish kind of haircut. Uh-huh. He uh, was a Betty Davis impersonator in his uh, oh. uh, you know professional life, and he loops some of her lines as doing Betty Davis uh, for lines oh, wow. that she couldn't uh, get when they they didn't get it all when they uh, when Larry Cohen shot that oh, movie. So that's that the male hero, the male hero from Messiah of Evil is doing Betty Davis's dialogue in some of those scenes. Oh, that's amazing. I didn't know that. Yeah, I just, I watched her recently. I'm not even sure why. I think I was right. Oh, I did the liner notes for my stepmother's an alien. So I started watching these weird stepmother and stepfather films from the 80s, like the stepfather, which isn't that weird, but, and it's great. But, um, and I'd never seen Wicked Stepmother. So I thought, oh, I'll give this a try. And I was like, what am I looking at? And it was really fun. I, I really ended up enjoying it. Um, And so there's just, there's something about, her performance in this that feels very much like I just want to have a good time, you know, and, and it, and it translates, I think to the audience, you know, I thought it was so weird tonally because I, I, at first I thought it was like playing it kind of straight, like it was going to be an espionage film. So that when you get to the point where he's deaf, forcing that man into the phone booth oh, yeah. and shouting at him. And it's clearly like making fun of this character. And then it's like, he's ultimately killed. And then it's got a happy ending because you're really rooting for the villain. And it, I think, I think at first I w- it kind of threw me like, shouldn't we feel bad that there's been this tra- tragic death of, the, of our protagonist, but uh, that's not the film that we're watching. <laughs> no, we're not. We're just watching this woman just like chew scenery and like take over the world. And, <laughs> It's so weird. Like, it's just, it's this amazing, amazing film. It's not like anything I can think of that was made for TV back then or now even really. Um, and I love, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was just saying, and I love when someone chews the scenery. I mean, I always joke and say that if you could, they could just chew till there's no scenery left. I would just, just love it. That's movie heaven. <laughs> Well, there's a fine line for that, you know, like, like you can come in and be larger than life and be awful. You know what I mean? Like, I think it takes somebody like Betty Davis or Gloria Swanson or just a really good actor to like, kind of know that's what they're doing, you know, and, and, and to, and to like, really, I don't know what the word is, because now I want to say like, swallow it. Like, like, I think of, um, I'm going to go way off, but there's a movie called uh, Cabin by the Lake. I don't know if you have you any of you guys seen that with Judd Nelson. It's a oh yes, yeah. Ooh, that's a yeah. great movie. Like yeah. he he's not necessarily chewing the scenery, but he's like really going for it, right? You know, like there's something about that performance yeah. that I would align with Betty Davis in that. It's like he understands what the material is, and then he's like, and then he's like amplifying sort of the the nuance of it, you know. And, and, and the can I don't know if it's campy, but it does have like this really, it's, it's such a strange premise, but like his performance. So, so I'm saying Judd Nelson is basically the, our generation's Betty Davis. 
Yay! I've just said it. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm totally on board with that. <laughs> yeah, I just need him to make more movies of that. Yeah, I wish Cabin he would. He's such Cabin a good actor. I say Cabin in the Woods. Cabin by the Lake. Cabin by the There's Lake. There's a lot he's, of cabins in yeah, movies. You guys know that. He's such a good actor. <laughs> you could you could just tell like he's really enjoying doing mm-hmm. this part of like this really evil person that's killing these women so he could be a good screenwriter. You know? <laughs> yes. And yeah. like it's kind of the same feel of this. Like, you know. Madam Sin's son. Oh, Judd Nelson. Yeah, that's right. I'm calling it right here. But yeah, so so anyway, so it's got this great larger than life kind of aesthetic to it. And it's great sort of spy thriller, which is really hard to pull off on like a small screen film. I don't know that any of them have looked quite like this. Oh, I was going to say, and it's it's interesting too. Well, I don't know that it's that interesting, Um, but I'm going to claim it's interesting because this is the point. This is a year after Diamonds Are Forever which is the last Sean Connery, not counting Never Say Never Again, and is 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 the last one to include Spectre until Daniel Craig takes over. And is is after Diamonds Are Forever, they calm down the James Bond films for the next two, Live and Let Die and um, Man with the Golden Gun. And they're less about crazy geniuses trying to take over the world. And one's about drug smuggling and one's about Christopher Lee as an assassin. And they're much so it's to the point where Madam Sin is going full on crazy James Bond. James Bond is actually calming down and going qu- as quiet sort of as it gets for the movies. So um, I don't know that, that that's interesting, but that's a histor- it's historically. Yeah, you're saying like it comes at the end of like these kind of over the top spy thrillers that were playing yes. on the big screen. And, and maybe David Green as the co-writer and director was honing in on that. Particularly because they're British films, right? So because this because this was when did this air? It's the beginning of seventy two, right? Or... I think so. That's okay, so it's probably question. made in seventy one. It's in my notes here. Forever. Let me yeah. see. It was uh, January fifteenth, nineteen seventy two. Yeah. And Sean right. Connery shot a film there later too, because uh, I think Entrapment was shot on that island. Oh. Oh, and I think a lot of it was also shot at Pinewood Studios. Mm. The the interiors, I think. Um, yeah. The... Isle of Mull is the yeah. is the exteriors, and I think that's where they shot Eye of the Needle and a few other things. And so I, I think that wow. that also gives it some of the um, maybe the epic scope of it, like the way that they can use the locations for the exterior shots. I guess maybe you're right though that the interiors are all in a in a studio. But I think they were. I think it said Pinewood Studios at the end of the film, mm. and Pinewood was on my mind because I think they shot Hellraiser at Pinewood. And I was just watching an interview with Doug Bradley and he was talking about it. So, um, but yeah, so like, um, um, yeah, they make great use of the locations. we got Betty Davis. We haven't talked about Robert Wagner, um, who was an executive producer on this and had brought Betty Davis over. They were looking for a project together because he, I don't, I think they met because she had said something about how he was one of the sexiest actors she could think of or something. So I guess Robert Wagner was like, why don't I give her a call? Then she's open to talking to me. And so, um, he brought her onto TV and I don't know if it takes a thief was her TV debut, but they hit it off really well. And then he was like, we should do something else together. And then, and then this came to be Madam Sin was, and she got, she actually, I think it's in my notes. Uh, but, um, I think she saw an eight page treatment and then signed on. So she didn't even get the script at first. She just got the premise and the idea of what they were going to do with her. And she was like, I'm on board for this. Let's do it. And she loved the idea of working with Robert Wagner. I remember she called him brilliant in interviews and and also i just think she was taken with him because i mean let's face it robert wagner and madam sin is like the height of robert wagner being 
you're getting Wagnered all over. You're the getting place. Wagnered hard yeah. <laughs> all over the place in this one. He looks yeah. good. He looks yeah. good, and so like you could see where like he could charm his way into anything at this point. But like I don't know how David Green got involved with it, but I think it's started with Robert Wagner and Betty Davis originally just looking for a property to do together, and um and this came along. And, you know, it's interesting, the more we're now we're talking about David Green, the more I wish I did know about him because, cause, like I said, I didn't realize he was the co-writer on this until I watched it the second time. And um, not second time, the this time to prep. I've watched it three or four times now. But um, who came first, right? The, the treatment? Yeah. Or Wagner and Davis just looking for something and they met David Green and said, we have this idea. I don't really know how it came to be. Actually, it was the story came from two other guys who were predominantly associated with um, creating TV shows. Uh, Lou Morheim and Barry Shear uh, actually, I think, created the story. So I think maybe uh, David Green came a little later. But um, anyway, so they got along really well. And and I don't know how much money this film cost, but it looks like they spent a gazillion dollars on it. pretty good, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's just so it's so beautifully filmed. I will say, though, towards the end, I get kind of confused with all the stuff that's happening. And I think that's par for the course for a lot of pilots. You know, they haven't really ironed out the story. And I feel like after um, Cavendish goes back to the submarine, uh-huh. things kind of start to get a little hinky. I the 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 spot where um I I it it lost me slightly was when he kidnaps the commander the time in between when he kidnaps him and when he brings him back to me seems like it should be ages yes it does yeah and yet the naval guys are all still standing there geez when is he going to get back from lunch I don't and it (laughs) seems like hasn't been gone for days where 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 is he been but apparently not he wasn't gone that long they did things quickly. Yeah, and also, even, oh, go ahead. Bill. I was just gonna say, even the the quickness to um, him being kidnapped to this island and like going along with, you know, to the degree of like kidnapping his his friend, you know, to you know uh, get involved in this plot, it just seems like he's so easily persuaded to become part of Madamson's plan. And I, I've watched it a couple times now, preparing for this. I'm, it just seems like a very quick. He's a, he's a very quick sell on this idea. <laughs> he he kind of is. Well, because like, like for people who haven't seen it, so one of the things that happens is they bring him to the island and then they're like, okay. Oh, there's a whole backstory too. We can talk about her, his dad as well. But like, um, so they're like, we want you to do all this. And he's like, make me, you know. And they're like, oh, here's some video footage of your girlfriend or wife. I, I'm unclear. Um, getting uh, kidnapped and tortured. And we don't know what became of her. Her body probably got thrown in the river somewhere. And he's like, okay, I'll do it. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, that's literally, like, what happens. But then he finds out, like, a few scenes later, that the film footage that he's watching of his girlfriend being tortured is coming from Madame Sin's henchman because he recognizes the scar on the Mm -hmm. one guy's hand when they're doing the Cavendish brain scan thing. And, um... And then he, he gets up and he walks out and he's like, your guy's tortured him. And I'm like, you didn't do any investigation beforehand. You just kind of <laughs> took her word that this is where the torture was coming from. She has some really great video footage, though. Of And I think that his boss has this really great, like, mutton chop mustache. Thing. Yes. And I think yeah. he had that so that we would remember he was the boss. Because <laughs> he just kind of pops up intermittently throughout the film. And I think yeah. it would be easy to forget who that character was uh-huh. if he didn't look so unique. And mutton chop him. Yeah, he got munch chopped. And so they're walking down these stairs, the boss, whose name I'm forgetting, and Barbara. 
and he's and he's giving her all this information and somehow man of sin has gotten like the vocals the audio like she said we really had to work at getting the audio quality better but like and and they've got this great like black and white almost snuff footagey stuff <laughs> happening it's like and i thought about that too because it's it kind of predates us looking at snuff film footage like in films like i don't i, I don't know does it predate snuff yeah um yeah, I think Snuff is 70, came out in 76, but uh, yeah. I think Slaughter was 73 yeah. or so. And, and I, I, around the same time. I was just thinking about, like, the idea of, like, it's not, it's clearly not actual Snuff footage. Like, mm. it's not meant to look like a Snuff film, but the fact that they're showing this woman getting tortured in this black and white grainy kind of aesthetic, I thought was really interesting. You know, because I hadn't seen a lot of that up to this point in film that I can yeah. recall. Yeah. Um, and it's it's disturbing. I was surprised to see Dudley Sutton uh, from The Devils, which has a lot of torture in it, too, from mm. the previous year, as the uh, henchman. Well, he was like, sign me up. Yeah. That's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for some reason, I, I could have sworn that Robert Wagner was tortured or something to make him part of it. But it really is sort of he just they show him the, the layout. Maybe in the same way that Betty Davis wanted to work with Wagner, Lawrence wants to work with Madame Sin. Because he does say, like, you know, oh, I've heard all about you. And he knows all about Madam Sin. And maybe he's like, this might be fun. So, it's a challenge. So he, just, he joins up. Why not? And, and just the way she kind of just casually looks at him and says, will you help me steal a Polaris submarine? He's like, what? <laughs> and she's like, come on. And, and she, he does, he, he does, he does, she does do that thing where, well, they only have a million dollars. And that was felt very Dr. Evilly. Yeah. Me, I think he's, right? I think she did say a billion though, but that did make did, me Was think, it a billion? I thought it was a million. I think she said a billion, but, but oh, it million. did make me think of that scene in, where he asked for like a million dollars. And he puts his little finger up on his mouth and, and uh, Austin Powers. And they're like, guys, we're past that now. Inflation has caught up. <laughs> But, um, yeah, it's just, it's such a wild, like, her customer base. Like, where did these people <laughs> coming from? Yeah. Like, I need a Polaris submarine There's tomorrow. no dark web back then to, yeah. to go on. And, no, they found yeah. her wherever they found her. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's such a weird, I don't know. It, but it feels like so many pilots from that era yeah. where I feel like they just want to get the idea out there. But sometimes it yes. doesn't feel like, I don't know, have you guys ever seen the pilot to Mandrake? That, like, don't even ask oh. me what the storyline is, but it's super confusing. Yes, a long time ago, yeah. And there's another one where Joe Penny uh, plays a guy who's, like, half Asian, and he's learning to become a samurai. Oh, and the pilot so film for that is crazy. And then there's another one, Sword of Justice, with Dak Ramble. Like, none of them make sense to me. There's, there's I, I Love a Mystery, uh, too, I think, when David Hartman was in that. Ooh, I haven't seen that. I love David Hartman. That's fun, based on the, uh, the old radio, Carl mm-hmm. Morse radio show. Uh, that 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 was like made in the late '60s, but didn't come out until the early '70s. That one that was a fun. That's kind of Madame Sin, um, uh, not as big, but uh, a lot of fun. Madame Sin adjacent. Madame Sin adjacent. Yeah, it's basically three guys, like the the smart guy, the tough guy, and like the crazy Southern guy who who go on adventures. They love a mystery, and so <laughs> I think it would be actually a really nice double feature with Madame Sin. Actually. Huh. I feel like I have a copy of I Love a Mystery and I, ha- I just haven't seen it yet because I was obsessed with David Hartman when he was on Good Morning America. <laughs> I'm not sure why. And we covered a David Hartman movie here. He was great in The Virginian. Yeah, he's a he was a good actor, but I guess I knew him as like a a guy who just did Good Morning America, like the host of this new show. I, I think the thing with David Hartman, and then I'll start stop talking about David Hartman, um, is that I remember him best for 
whatever station that show was oh. on, you you would hear the prime ABC, time shows yeah. the night before, whenever the credits rolled, you'd hear, hi, this is David Hartman. Tomorrow on Good Morning America, we've got a guy in who has two heads. We got a guy who's eight foot tall and eats babies. And he would just, um, that sounds more <laughs> like real people than Good Morning America, but you know what I mean. Yeah. And it would always, his voice would come on, uh, you know, tomorrow on Good Morning America. I think we've actually talked more about David Hartman here than we did when we covered the David Hartman film. Yeah, you could be right. Yeah, just, I don't think I mentioned that when we did the David it's Hartman film. Leighton Hartman. <laughs> Leighton Hartman. We got <laughs> late LHS, Leighton Hartman syndrome. He's always on our mind. There, the one of the things I, I really like about I love I love a mystery. Sorry, Madam Sin is the sonic devices. Oh, so great! Yeah, the the weird sci-fi stuff that they have in this is yes. amazing. Because I am, I am, as you know, I'm, I'm a Doctor Who fan, and the Doctor has a sonic screwdriver, which um, does more than just you know screwdriving stuff. But um, it 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 was created in like 1968 when sonic stuff was happening and so the doctor would use it and it was basically a screwdriver he could unhook stuff and unlock doors when they would get um locked in prisons using this sonic device and so seeing a sonic gun and all this is a lot of fun because that that i think that's sort of i don't know do they still are sonic weapons still i I bet they are right i don't know i i don't don't know know. you know that's something we should have looked up i like i like the weird like they would do like the brain scans by like having like a model of a brain hovering over the <laughs> yes. person and then they would have this like ray gun thing that mm. they would like or scan device that they would run over the model of the brain. Yes. And somehow it would it would implant memories or take memories out, I guess. Yeah, I'm no the, scientist, so Yeah, I I'm not a scientist either. Explain so it. We should have brought a doctor on for this episode, I realize, yeah. But and like a sonic expert. But like they would just use the model of the brain to like operate on the actual brain beneath. And it was so wild to me because yeah. it, but it was a great way to get a brain on the camera. Mm-hmm. You know, like show a brain because they probably couldn't have done that any other way on a on a TV movie, right? Yeah. Like they've been like, no, you can't have a brain on a TV movie. Sorry, that's for we'll wait for Happy Birthday to me and reruns, and we'll figure out what to I do. I kept with that. expecting that brain to like eyes to open up on it or something. That would have been amazing. Look, yeah, and more Namtut from Blood Diner, and, and, and then maybe wink at me. At the end. <laughs> hey, Dan. <laughs> hey. But, yeah, the devices were like absolutely amazing in this, and and very creative. And I guess very much of its time. And so, Bill, you talked a little bit about Sebastian. So that that was one I didn't watch. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about Sebastian? Because I'm kind of curious about it now. I mean, I I, I haven't seen it in a few years. I'm a little fuzzy on it. It, I I just remember it being kind of closer to the the camp spy thriller that you might imagine when you talk about Austin Powers. Like, this is the kind of film that they would be satirizing. It's very over the top. Maybe you could put alongside also things like Danger Diabolic or things like that. Did it have, like, crazy weapons and stuff? Yeah, I think so. I I remember at one point he slipped acid and, you know, he has to go through. Like, like it's very late 60s kind of humor to it. But um, but maybe, uh, yeah, you put it alongside things like In Like Flint and yeah. it, it was in that in that tradition. But I, I, I can't it, it was one of those like crazy stories. I couldn't really do it justice to a plot synopsis, you know, of it. But um, I think it's on YouTube right now, um, okay. um, as is The Strange Affair, which was really hard to find when I saw it for prepping for the people next door. <laughs> Isn't that always the way? Yeah, I had to import it from Europe for like 20 bucks, and now it's on YouTube in an equally good transfer. Oh, man. 
Yeah, I I spent a hundred dollars, and it took me months and months and months, and a brother buying me a thirty dollar gift certificate to get a copy of Just a Gigolo, that David Bowie movie, mm-hmm. because it was so rare in like 1990 and I was so into David Bowie and then I got it. Of course it's awful. I don't think I've ever sat through the whole film and, and then now it's like everywhere. You know what I mean? I could have just waited and seen it and realized it wasn't very good, you know, but now I spent a hundred dollars on it. Yeah. I've never seen that, but I, I, I got an issue of Rolling Stone magazine last week that uh, was the cover story from his let's dance period, like from 82 or three. Yeah. And uh, they, they mentioned just gigolo being bad in that cover story. <laughs> <laughs> he said he said he knew it was bad when he would go to parties and run into other cast members and nobody would look at each other in the eyes. <laughs> and that's when he realized, oh, God, we made a really bad movie. And, so, <laughs> and I think about that when I watch it. I don't think I've ever sat through the whole thing. I took it over or a friend came over. I told somebody I had it like in 2002 and um, and he couldn't believe I had a copy of it. And, uh, and he's like, I've got to see this. Cause he was a huge David Bowie fan. And he came over to my house and I'm 99% positive. He watched like 20 minutes with me and he's like, can we watch something else? And then I made him watch a part of fatal frames. Oh, nice. Yeah. I think I just took him through the music videos. Oh, <laughs> Stefania Stella. I know. Al, Al Festa, the besta. So yeah. not to, we keep getting off target here, but if yeah. anybody here loves Fatal Frames, I follow Stefania Stella on Facebook. And during the early days of the pandemic, she posted a photo of herself in like a gas mask, oh. like for protection. <laughs> and I just and I love her because who does that? Stefania Stella does. Okay, so that's it. Stefania. So, Stefania. He he's she's jealous because I'm very good actress. <laughs> So anyway, <laughs> back to Madison. So um, so yeah, so like uh, uh, some of the some of the David Green stuff, I think might still be kind of lost, but luckily with stuff like YouTube and and some of the stuff has come out on DVD. Like Fatal Vision does have an earlier DVD release or at least VHS. I have it on DVD. It might be bootleg. I can't remember now. Um, and he did that movie, The Penthouse, that I mentioned, also came out on DVD, and, I'm, and uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane's on DVD. So his stuff over the years has actually survived better than some other filmmakers. But I think that this is an interesting gateway into his TV movie work. I actually am not sure if this is his first TV movie or not. It might be. But it's. It. I think if you compare it to the rest of his career, I think it'll be kind of eye-opening. To, it was I think this was his TV movie debut. This will be kind of eye-opening because it's it, nothing else compares to it that I can think of. Can you think of another movie that he made that compares to it, Bill? I mean, that's a TV movie. Yeah, no, I don't think so. That's yeah. such a I, such a weird one. And I don't I don't think there's a prior. I mean, something like People Next Door feels like a feels like a feature, but it is not. I think this is the first one that is a proper made-for-TV movie. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so, like, this is an interesting gateway, I think, into his films. And so, I don't know, is there anything else you guys want to add? Um, I, I, I really want to see a Madam Sin part two Yeah, with Judd Nelson now. I do, yeah. too, yeah. So good. Let's write him a letter. Sin son. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I can't act, I, but I want to be in it. Yeah. <laughs> Please. You could, you could be the waiter. The wacky waiter who falls on the cake. And then Judd Nelson executes you with his sonic ray gun. Oh my god! Oh man! And then and then Nate gets to do uh, deaf acting for like ten minutes. 
Yes, you know, and in in the movies that I made when I was younger uh, that I acted in, you <laughs> would be able to tell that I'm a huge overactor. Talk about chewing scenery. I forgot you have a filmography. Yeah, they're <laughs> yes. all terrible, but in a good way. Well, that'll probably get your foot in the door for this Judd Nelson Sin Son. I mean, I think if he sees my work, <laughs> you know. We can dream. Yes. <laughs> we can dream. I was going to mention um, the actress who plays Nico in the movie. Um, oh, is yeah. A, is, is a woman. It's it's Pick Sen Lim yes. is her name. And she was actually the year before mentioning Doctor Who. She was in a Doctor Who. Oh. A serial called The Mind of Evil with the third Doctor, John Pertwee. She played... Um, I forget her character's name. I think it was Chin Lee. She was like the um, the assistant to the Chinese ambassador at like a peace conference. And her husband, Don Houghton, wrote that um, oh. wrote that script. And Don Houghton also wrote another Doctor Who script called Inferno, but he's best known for writing uh, Dracula A.D. 1972, sure? The Satanic Rites of Dracula, and The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. Oh, I had no idea. That's so cool. Yeah, you know, um, I totally forgot what I was going to say now. You said something (laughs) Something about me. Oh, you know, we we didn't talk about, like, the the layers to Madamson. So one of the things that I find so interesting about her is this character, Nico, for instance, that came from a really bad life. And then she erased those memories, right, from Nico's mind. And then fed into her, oh, she thought she's always been here and she grew up with love and and not no hardships. And I thought that that was a really interesting thing because she's asking Robert Wagner, is it bad what I've done to like have taken? Because she was like sold into prostitution when her parents murdered in front of her. Like every bad thing that could happen to a woman happens to her like by the time she's 12. And she finds her like literally on the street somewhere and brings her back and then creates this new life for her. And it's kind of a life of enslavement. It's got a lot of gray to it, right? But at the same time, she's also taken away all of that trauma. And I find that really interesting because Madame Sin sort of spins it as like uh, a pretty magnanimous thing that she's done for this person. And I don't know, were you, did you guys think about any of that stuff with Nico? I, I thought it possibly there'd be if if the show had gone to a series or something there'd be a future episode that maybe follows up Nico's story and it would be called like Nico's story yeah or something like that where we get more in depth to her because she kind of shows up and she's there kind of heavy in the first half and then she kind of vanishes so so I sort of thought hmm, I'd, I'd like to actually see that character a little more so learn a little more about her but I I I, I did I, I I don't know with Madame Sin and her I mean I, I guess. If you could erase every terrible thing that ever happened to me, uh, that would be nice. But I don't know. I think I'd be losing something. Yeah. It's just such an interesting idea. And they don't Mm. really, like, go further into it. Just say it. Yeah. And then I'm guessing with Barbara, who is Robert Wagner's girlfriend, that they're just going to do something with her, too. Probably get rid of him from her mind i would bet yeah that's what if, I was if they thinking. can if they that's can what i was yeah. thinking they were gonna do and she was kind of a compelling character too because i guess she wasn't really in her right mind when she did well, we haven't really talked about the ending so like he's reunited with barbara and he's saved the day i guess or hopes he has and and he goes but they're somewhere in the tropics i think or somewhere and they're they're seemingly very much in love and finally reunited and then we find out that she's drugged his drink and and that she's killed him. And there's this great camera shot 
where first he's just like she's like it'll be really quick and, and they promise me it'll be painless but he's just kind of staring at her as he's starting mm -hmm. to slip away and then he falls to the ground and then the camera shot is his point of view dead basically yeah. watching her walk out of the house i love that it was so eerie and then yeah. you can tell that she's really conflicted and it's and then it goes to like this really happy-go-lucky madam sin and malcolm who's denholm elliott off looking to buy buckingham palace and, making a joke <laughs> about it. and it's like it's such a weird like i think bill hit on it he was talking about the tonal shift at the end and it is really weird and and i don't know that i actually the first time i watched it i had no idea that robert wagner wasn't going to make it i thought yeah for sure he's got to make it he's the hero and i was really shocked and i'm just curious what everybody else's first impressions of that ending was oh well, yeah, i mean that was that was that i mean my yeah my impression was that he was going to make it and i thought it was like strange that it was going to have a downbeat ending for a for a made for tv movie but then but then it isn't downbeat because the the happy ending is that Betty Davis can to live on to like have you know bitchy one liners and you know and, and conquer the world and I just thought that was like such a like I I did I just didn't realize that that was the film that I was watching I mean her scenes feel like that but I but you can certainly have lots of colorful villains and still have a like a conventional you know uh, hero's journey kind of ending and I, that's so I I was surprised that it it ended in a different totally different manner than I was expecting but uh, yeah no and I agree with you about the uh, like the the horror of that also I, I i guess i was thinking like um of things like manchurian candidate as far as like the way people can be almost like programmed to become killers or you know like uh mindless pawns of of uh madam sin but it's not like i mean the science is so fantastic that i i i kind of just took it like okay well they're, they're just playing people's brains and when they explain like oh he he's actually not being tortured he's, he's having a nice he'll remember this as a nice lunch yeah like, that's right that's, that seems awfully specific <laughs> <laughs> he had crab cakes they're like putting that into his head <laughs> Yeah, I, I think I, I, I do. I, I didn't expect him to die, but it does really show at the end how once you become part of the web of Madam Sin, you can't, you're not getting out. So because there's that like when the guy zaps him, Wagner, with the sonic gun and he's dead, <laughs> he's dead, but then he's not dead. And then but she's got another plan. So the, the great thing about supervillains like that, they always got a backup. You have so, to. And that, and then, and then, like you said, it's 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 it. You get that scene, and he dies. And if you want to see Robert Wagner just kind of acting wacky, there's a couple <laughs> of scenes like that in this one. And uh, and then, yeah, right after that, immediately goes to the Buckingham Palace scene, which is like what? Yeah, it it's just it's like, okay, so wah, weird. Wah. And also, yeah. also, she had this past relationship with Wagner's father, which I thought was really interesting too, because um, she says this thing that's really poignant to me, where. Uh, I don't remember exactly how she worded it, but she said, I wanted it to last forever. And he had other plans and it feels kind of tragic. Yeah. You know, and, and Denholm Elliott, I think he's uh, starting to panic that maybe she's not going to be on her top of her game because this past romance with his dad is affecting her ability to like, like she's going to trust Robert Wagner because of the father. Right. But she doesn't fully know what he's capable of. And I think Denholm Elliott brings that up as well. And um and I, I just think I think for a pretty campy supervillain, she's got a lot of stuff happening, like with her character that I, I find really effective. And those is are... there a moment when Robert Wagner says, "Is there a Mister Sin?" <laughs> 
wink, wink. I don't remember wink, that. Wink, 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 wink. Yeah, I don't remember him doing that. Give me buy yeah. a drink. I heard there's a no Mr. Sin. <laughs> no Mr. That, Sin. That would be in the, the porno sequel. <laughs> Madam Rim. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I mean, if you were going to make one. If you were going to, sure. Yeah, not that I would do that, but. Um, do we have anything else we want to add before I just go through some background? I'm good. I'm good. Okay, cool. Uh, so, Madam Sin originally aired on ABC on January 15th, 1972. It came in at number 70 for the season, which I think is sort of middling. It got an 18.4 slash 24, which just basically means that 24% of the television viewing audience tuned into Madam Sin, which is almost a quarter of the country, which is not bad. Um, it ran against on NBC, the NBC Wide World premiere movie of Emergency, which is a great TV movie and probably what I would have watched uh, had I been old enough to pick my programs. Um, on CBS was the Mary Tyler Moore Show, the new Dick Van Dyke Show, and Mission Impossible. Mary Tyler Moore was pretty much a juggernaut back then, so maybe I'm not surprised it didn't do as well as they thought. Uh, this was, as I mentioned, Betty Davis's TV movie debut. She said in interviews, I've never played a part like this before. No actress ever has, which is really another over-the-top statement. Um, oh, I see. So David Green came in later. David Green only saw an eight-page treatment. So the treatment was written before he was on board. Um, and Betty Davis liked it because it reminded her of her time in the classic Hollywood era. Uh, she said, quote, look, practically nobody's writing scripts for people my age, and I refuse to sink to supporting roles. Therefore, I must wait a long time for a good part. And that was something I also wanted to mention, too. So at this point in the TV movie, uh, and we talked about this, I think, last time we were on here, Bill, with um, Barbara Stanwyck, that a lot of older actors were coming to television because the TV movie was still giving them leading roles. Um, and that wasn't really happening anywhere else. And it, clearly, Betty Davis was aware of that. Um, and so TV became a home to a lot of these great actors, these like golden era actors. Um, Davis said she found the role both challenging and fun. Uh, she said that she always looked for something to relate to in her characters. And she wondered how she'd do that with Madame Sin. Um, she, she called the film a crime fantasy. Uh, oh, we didn't mention her beautiful wardrobe was put together by Edith Head, who was, you know, legendary at the time. Uh, Davis and Robert Wagner were really, uh, they loved each other. Um, and Wagner and Davis had planned to work again together immediately after Madame Sin on a project that also involved Anthony Quinn. But apparently that never came to be. Uh, Quinn was actually going to be a co-producer on that. Um, as you mentioned, Madamson was intended to be a pilot, um, and the ABC press materials promoted Madamson as a, quote, sinister woman with a global operation powerful enough to topple governments and change the course of history. Wagner uh, first met Davis when she mentioned in an interview that she thought that he was the sexiest man alive. He called her and uh, thanked her and persuaded her to do an episode of It Takes a Thief. Um, her episode was written specifically for her. It was called That Touch of Magic, and it aired on January 26, 1970. Um, but on Madame Sin, Robert Wagner said of the premise, quote, it's a very exciting concept. Madame Sin is a mystery woman, an enigma. Nobody knows where she came from. Some say she was left on the doorstep of a brothel in Bangkok, end quote. Um, and then he added later, quote, hopefully people will tune in to watch her kill her guest stars each week, or maybe hoping to see one of them do her in, end quote. She also really liked David Green, but she described uh, him as brilliant, but different. Um, oh, also, uh, this was not an ABC movie of the week. This was an ABC movie of the weekend, which um, 
was a thing. I, I don't think it ran very long, but, you know, I think Duel was an ABC Movie of the Weekend. And other uh, ABC Movie of the Weekends to air this same season were In Broad Daylight, Deadly Dream, The Astronaut, and Death Takes a Holiday. Those last two stars, uh, Money Marco. Also, Madam Sin debuted the same night as Gary Collins' The Sixth Sense. Um, and other pilots airing in the 1971-72 season include Cross Current, which was later titled The Cable Car Murders, Evil Roy Slade, which I think starred John Aston, The Eyes of Charles Sam with Peter Haskell, Man on a String, um, and the number one pilot for the season was Call Her Mom, which I think was Connie Stevens. Um, so this film began shooting in February and March of 1971. The bulk of Madame Sin was shot in London at the Pinewood Studios. The rest was shot at the island of Mole in Scotland. Well, it's not really Scotland. It's like an island off of Scotland. Really off of Scotland. I think it's like a six-hour commute to get there. Um, the castle is called the Glengorn Castle, or also known as Castle Sorn. Um, the Acropolis is not just a tourist attraction. It's now a bed and breakfast, so you can stay there. And I'm, I'm going to do that before I die. So also shot in England around the same time as Madison was a TV movie called Fire Chasers, which starred Anjanette Comer and Chad Everett. It was scheduled to be a TV movie, but looks to have gotten a theatrical release as well. And the production of these films in England were slightly controversial because um, entertainment unions in the U.S. complained that the location shoots were taking work away from the American crews. But shooting in England could result in bringing in a film that saved about 25% from what the budget would have been if they shot it in the U.S. So here's some reviews and other commentary by the press. Um, Richard Combs of London Monthly Film Bulletin remarked that Madamson suffered from a, quote, dull script, a wooden hero, and abysmal ending, end quote. Kevin Thomas of the LA Times thought Madamson was lots of fun, and he enjoyed the handsome production. One journalist called it women's lib James Bond, uh, only wilder. Some press called Davis's character a female Fu Manchu. So we didn't talk about it. She's supposed to be half Asian in this, and I don't know how I feel about that, but there you go. Um, it uh, played theatrically overseas and sometimes still run, reruns uh, in the UK on TV. The film opened at the Astoria in London's West End and pulled in a respectable but only okay box office of $8,556 that first week. This was according to Variety. Um, it was a replacement for... The theatrical production of Anthony and Cleopatra, which is interesting because David Green was in a stage production of the Anthony and Cleopatra, and that's how he got to America. So one of the producers was a woman named Lillian Gallo, who was behind some really good TV movies and miniseries, including Haunts of the Very Rich, The Stranger Who Looks Like Me, and Hustling. Gallo actually served in the Korean War and was in the Marines, and then she worked as a production assistant on Broadway. And as Bill mentioned, the cinematography was by Anthony B. Richmond, who also worked on Let It Be, Don't Look Now, and Candyman, and he was also from London. Tonight on the CBS Wednesday Night Movie, Michael was the first perfect robot. You all made me very well. And the government can't wait to get their hands on him. You had Michael firing weapons. Now I damn well want to know why. Kidnapped by his maker, the prototype must look into his heart and make a life and death decision. Don't hold me. Why not? You'll feel the metal. Christopher Plummer is the scientist fighting to save his creation, his friend. I resent being surrounded like some kind of criminal. Prototype, next prototype is the story of it's it's basically it's said it's some sort of scientific um 
Institute kind of thing. And uh, there's a Dr. Forrester, Dr. Clayton Forrester. No, I'm kidding. It's Dr. Carl Forrester, played by Christopher Plummer. And they have made a robotic man named Michael. And the movie begins with uh, uh, Dr. Forrester basically takes Michael out. It's Christmas time. He takes Michael to a department store to see if he can sort of be around people and no one will look at him and go, oh, my God, it's a crazy robot in an odd sweater. And and no one does. Although, uh, and he, in fact, even he, he uh, Michael actually takes like a little Rubik's Cube out of the store and the security guard tries to arrest him for shoplifting. Um and uh, everyone's really excited because Michael uh, is is uh, they've been working on him for years. It's a go- it's a government uh, grant kind of place. So so the government's uh, well, I guess taxpayers and everything are, are paying for Michael. The government finds out about this. They take Michael away and they have him put him through all sorts of tests, some of which involve weaponry. And when Dr. Forrester discovers that they may be using Michael as a weapon, he basically takes Michael and runs away. And more or less, uh, the first half of the movie is uh, Michael and the, um, the the government and everything like that. The second half of the movie is Michael and Dr. Forrester. They, they kind of go back to Dr. Forrester's. I think, I don't know if it's his hometown, but it's where he like went to college or something. And they kind of become sort of friends and hang around a bit. But the government is after them to try to get Michael back. And it will they get Michael back? What will happen? Will Dr. Forrester and Michael become pals? Will Dr. Forrester get back together with his wife, who isn't too keen that she ran away with a strange robot in an odd sweater? What will happen next? That's that's the basics. Man invents a human robot and then runs away with them. Very Prototype. romantic. Prototype. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, okay, so I know Bill and I have seen this movie before. Um, Dan, is this your first time seeing it? It is. And... You know, I, I enjoyed it. I, I don't. I didn't love it. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, it, it, well, it was Levinson and Link. So when I saw Levinson and Link, I thought, yes. But I got to the end, and even more so than Madam Sin, I thought, I feel like I need to see more of this story. Yeah. Um. The the, the problem I had with it, 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 and and it's it's Michael is very charming. Um. Christopher Plummer, less so. Um. Uh. I, I think I think just the, the problem I had with it was that, you know, like they, they say that a lot of scripts have like three act structures and this one has sort of like a one and a half act structure. The first act is introducing us to everyone and the government showing up. The second act is them running away and they should like Michael should learn more about humanity and him and Dr. Forrester become friends. And then the third act, it would be them encountering the the government people or going back and facing up with everyone and that kind of thing but it's actually what happens is we get the first act and about half of the second act and then the movie ends and so it feels to me like it it be we we never really get that sort of moment where like dr forrester and michael we we almost do where dr forrester and michael really sort of become like um like they're the connection that I'm hoping for never quite. Ha- it actually seems to happen at the end when Michael, I won't say what happens, but, but yeah, it seems to happen at the end. And it's, it's, it's kind of odd because there's like, there's a scene where Michael meets a young lady and he starts to talk with her. And then Dr. Forster gets him away from her as quick as possible. And you think, okay, he's going to meet up with her again later or something. And maybe, you know, there'll be some awkward data style flirting or, you know, something like that, but there isn't. And then you think there'll be scenes where, like, he learns more about how to be human, and he doesn't really. 
and and it's 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 kind of odd um I mean, I guess that makes it interesting that it doesn't go exactly where I think it's going to go. But at the same time, when it ends, I thought, hmm, that was the ending? Hmm. Yeah, it's so you, I, I kind of like it, but I didn't love it. I was going to say that you're so right that that is the structure of it, though. I was thinking about that um, rewatching it today because, yeah, the, the, you, you feel like there's a third act where there would be like a lot of climactic action that wraps it all up. And because there isn't that act, it it does it does feel like a little bit unusual that it's mm. all character development and setup, and then a very abrupt kind of resolution. Um, it it because because when that when that guy shows up near the end with like the money for Doctor Forrester, what he shows up with the money, and I thought, oh, he's brought the he's brought the government with him, and then I looked and was like, there's only ten minutes left. <laughs> I well, this is the end. <laughs> this is the end of the movie, and then it ends. And you're like, huh. Well, it's, it feels a lot. It's, it's reminiscent of a number of films that are like horror films where the the creature or or whatever you want to call it that was created in the lab or that was honed in the lab um, is out in the world and you know violent violent repercussions you know come of that. I'm thinking of everything from like Monkey Shines to Megan, you know oh, the yeah. recent film. Like, like there's always that like I mean, it's it ripping on Frankenstein. So I mean you know that like that you know exactly, with yeah. the creature out in the world it's gonna the situation where the creature's going to be forced to fight back and you don't have any of that in this and um, and, when, and, and when it and I, i'm not going to give away the ending now but when it ended i thought oh i see exactly where they can go next but but obviously they never went there so it, it it's it's a movie that i enjoy but at the same time i felt was i felt it was like it was missing something like they it like almost like it was meant to be like a three hour movie or a two-parter or something like that and they just cut it off early but 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 everyone's everyone's really good in it you know michael has his charms he's not he reminded me of a little of the non-cop version of future cop have you ever seen that tv show or tv movie he looks kind of like he 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 looks kind of like future cop too not not future cop 2 as in number two i mean future cop also (laughs) <laughs> and um, but but it's but it's weird because the thing with Michael is you you kind of expect him to do something like the most like robot thing he does is he opens a garage door really fast at one point. And I thought, well, I guess that's. That's that's super <laughs> that's a talent human or something. I don't know, because they, they like they're going to park their car in the garage and Michael gets out and throws open the garage door. And I thought, OK, he's got a bit of super strength. He opened the garage door really fast. But I thought I expected him to do something not like le- like six million dollar man stuff or anything. But it's it's kind of like I expected. that's a whole other film. Yeah. 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 I, th- I think I. I I think I did watch it twice. And the second time I watched it, when I knew what was going to happen, I was more in uh, in in step with it. But the first time I watched it, I kept expecting it to be a Bigger? little more than it is. But that's my fault. That's well, my that's fate. not your fault. That's just how you oh, felt okay, about it. Oh, okay, good. But also, you're fired. <laughs> Again. <laughs> um, Nate, had you seen this before? Um, no, I honestly, I'd never even heard of it. Um, so, you know, that was kind of a shocker. Now, when uh, I looked it up, I was a little... Um, I mean, not necessarily worried or anything, but I did look up, you know, that it, it's a sci-fi or oh, it, yeah. it was classified, you know, in the sci-fi category. I forgot about that's that, not, yeah. I mean, I like some sci-fi, but in general, I'm just not, you know, a huge sci-fi guy. So I wasn't sure if I was going to like it or not. And 
Um, <clears throat> I did have maybe some of the same issues that Dan had. Like, I, I, you know, looking back on it now, I especially think that um, I would wonder how this would have fared as a miniseries or as a, you know, uh, maybe even a TV show. Um, I don't know. And what is it with the government in the 80s wanting to kill friendships? I mean, E.T., and now Michael, <laughs> like, what is going on here? That should have been the tagline: "The government wants to kill friendships." Prototype. <laughs> yes, and um, and yeah, I mean, I won't give away the ending either, except to say that uh, I actually thought the final shot of the movie was kind of poignant. Yeah, I liked that. I liked it. It was a, yeah. uh, it was very, um, you know, it kind of. Dang it! I feel like I'm going to spoil the ending, no matter what I say. But anyway, yes, poignant. Very poignant. Yeah, I would agree. And um, I liked, um, you know, I, 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 you know, I liked Michael himself, and I, I, but like Dan, I think I also would have preferred a lot of more robotic stuff. They should have had a scene where Michael did the robot oh. in like a <laughs> disco or okay. something. Okay. <laughs> I'm picturing that. I just that's a different film. Yeah, it wouldn't have fit with the tone of the film. It would have been but great, yeah. though, just in the middle of it, he just pops into a discotheque, and he's like, look at this. Yeah. I can dance. <laughs> he could have won the dance contest. <laughs> <laughs> it should have ended with Madame Sin appearing and taking Michael hostage. Well, she could have used him because he was yes. quite efficient at the stuff that they were testing on him. Mm-hmm. What would Which y'all have thought if, like, that's, you know, how it ended? With him doing oh, the robot? Well, no, with um, <laughs> Betty Davis showing up. And... Over the closing credits, him and Betty Davis. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just walking away together. That would have been great, and nobody would have understood it except us, and that would have made it yeah. even better. It would just be us, just a little inside joke <laughs> oh, for us. I love, it. I love it. So you liked it, but you didn't love it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily, I mean, that I think it's a bad movie or anything. It's just that... I mean, y'all know for me that um, I'm much more apt to go for the the campier, cheesier side of movies. And that's not to say I don't like some serious films, because I do. Um, but I just don't find them, I guess, necessarily as rewatchable, oh, I guess yeah. I should say. I could see that. I can't yeah. watch Prototype except for when I'm doing something with it, because it upsets me too much. You know? It is sad. It's, it's very, very sad. sad. It's yeah. a really sad film. But you're also fired, Nate, so... I How think... dare you? I just said <laughs> that I enjoyed it. <laughs> okay, I'll think about it. You're on okay. probation. I, I, right. I think part of the thing that makes it well so so sad is just that that feeling. Un- unlike in other films like this, where there's a real feeling of like a um, like this the 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 robot or the cyborg or whatever kind of coming to life. In this one, that doesn't happen. The whole point of it is that he can't act. If he acts any different from the way he's acting, they're going to find him. And so he gradually just kind of bores himself to well, death. Kind I wouldn't of, agree almost. with that. But... Well, well, I mean, because because that's the thing is like every time he tries to like, I'm gonna hang out with this gal. No, I'm gonna. I got us drinks for New Year's. Why did you do that? Well, but the you point. Know, I think the overall arching thing, though. Now, the more that I think about it, is that if you're gonna bring something to life, it also has to understand death. Mm. and and he clearly did when he saw frankenstein he clearly understood where he fit in this world and that his ending was probably not going to be very good and and so like it made me think of that movie electric dreams because electric dreams which is this amazing film it's it's like 
the computer learned to love, but because it learned to love, it had to learn to let go. And that's a really hard part of if you get all wonderful feelings have at their other opposite end, but still attached to that feeling, something darker or sadder or hard that you have to also tangle with once you open yourself up to that emotion, the good, the positive emotion. So for, for Michael to understand, so it's kind of the same thing. It's like that binary. So for him to live, he had to know that he could die and he had to kind of come to grips with this idea of what death was. And so for me, so like, I understand what you're saying about like these moments in the film, but I feel like the overarching theme is like, it's a lot of things. It's about like, cause he is a fatherless child and, and, and we can, we'll get into the nitty gritty of it. We'll talk about it later. Cause I feel like I'm going to go off on a tangent because I haven't talked to Bill yet about how he feels about this movie and I don't want to fire Bill. <laughs> so say, I'm just kidding. So what did you think of uh, prototype? Well, I, I really liked it. I, I, it's funny cause the first time I saw it, we had already talked about, you had told me that you were preparing something maybe for a conference about this, or you had described something you described the premise of this unusual Frankenstein-type TV movie. Yes. But I don't think I really made the connection that that's what Prototype was. I think I'd forgotten the title by the time that I got around to researching the people next door and the uh, other David Green thing. So I went into it, and I think halfway through, I was like, oh, this is that film that she was talking about. Because I, I started like seeing all the Frankenstein imagery, and I think I wrote to you, I'm like, is that Prototype? And you're like, yeah, what, that was the one. Yeah, no, I, it's... It's interesting because yeah, it it is. I think when I realized that it was playing on Frankenstein, I expected it to be more of a horror story than it was. But it's like sure. there's all this stuff in the dialogue that kind of comments on how it's not going to do that. Like even when um, he's like literally watching Frankenstein and uh, the Christopher Plummer character shuts it off. He's like, oh, it trivializes science, and um, you know the the way that even like reading the novel of Frankenstein and. Um, you know, his, his father figure science, you know, scientist is like, oh, you know, I don't want you looking at that because it's going to dilute your programming. Like he wants to shelter him from um, too much experience. Um, you know, and obviously, like, you know, they have him being born on Christmas. So it's like all this kind of Christ oh, metaphor yeah, kind yeah. of stuff happening too. <laughs> that uh, they don't really, I guess, maybe for fear of controversy, like dwell too much on that stuff. Yeah, I never it's... thought of that aspect of it. That's so interesting because because we covered a movie on here called Crawl Space that is also kind of like oh, yeah. a Frankenstein film in a different way. But they both have birthing scenes at Christmas. So that's really interesting. And I never made that connection until you just said that. So thank you. Yeah, well. And this time I also was thinking because Dan mentioned the the sweater, I was thinking of Andy from uh, Death Dream, who has the same kind oh, of curls. Yes, 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 yes. He does. You know, which Backus. is also dealing with like a uh, an inhuman child and and human father kind of uh, tension, but like much more pessimistic. But um, but yeah, I was thinking yeah. about that a little bit too because it's an odd performance. Like it's like he, he like I don't know why they would program to, him to have like a shaky adolescent kind of speaking voice. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that kind of adds to like the fact that he seems like a relatable person, even though, you know, it's ambiguous as to like how much emotion he's, he's developing, I guess, I guess we're meant to think of him as having kind of growing kind of angst by the end of the, of the story. Yeah. But, um, it's not clear like why he's learning to, to develop emotion because he's not programmed to be that way other than just like his exposure to humanity and exposure to art and exposure to stories like Frankenstein, like develops that side of him. I think so. That's what I thought. Yeah. But, um, 
And I'm trying to think what other things like play on that like fear of militarization. Like is short circuit do that? Like I'm trying to think of like what oh, other I things that like yeah. I want to say it probably of, does. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think what other things are like playing on that, but um, that kind of militarism thing. Cause I mean, that even kind of, you could probably, draw like a loose connection to something like friendly fire as far as like you know not wanting your child to become part of the military thing because that's that separation could be permanent well i mean now the more you talk about it i'm thinking about this idea that so so christopher Plummer's character is married to francis sternhagen who should be in every movie ever made let's just she's great this. <laughs> yeah. she's amazing and she they ask her the military comes after he's run away with michael and they they said so you guys have no children right and she's like, well, by choice. And don't try to say that he's using Michael as like this son he never had. But I think he is. And so some of the stuff you're talking about, I think maybe he sort of unconsciously programmed Michael to be kind of like a child because he was missing something in his life. And and so Michael does these things that are so ridiculously innocent and beautiful that I can barely stand it. So like... At the beginning when they're at the mall, he's fascinated by the little uh, choo-choo trains and the puffs of smoke that come out of them. And then later when he comes back after the military takes him away to do some experiments, he says, I get to, I got to touch snow for the first time. And, and he talks about how they let him look through the window. Like he wasn't allowed to leave his room or whatever, but they opened one of the windows for him and he put his hand out and he touched snow for the first time. And he's like a child. Like he, and actually David Morse, um, Am I getting the actor's name right? Is it David Morris? Yeah. He uh, he went to the mall to prepare for the role, and he just watched children looking at stuff, and then he mimicked the, what they did in his performance. And so he is trying to be like this kind of oversized child, and it is really interesting because the Frankenstein novel, and he even talks about it. The Frankenstein novel and the Frankenstein movie are wildly different. Yeah. But and also the thing that stands out to me the most is in the novel. Dr. Frankenstein is like, no, 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 I don't want you around. And he just chases him everywhere. He's like, you're my dad, and I don't know why you're treating me like this. You know what I mean? And here, <laughs> it's the exact opposite, right? He creates the quote-unquote monster, but he wants to be around him all the time. Maybe the the reason why he's... Um... I, I was just thinking, because Christopher Plummer's character is kind of kind of jerky to Michael for about the first two thirds of the film. And then he starts to mellow out. Maybe it's a sort of feeling that um, I didn't make him to be like my son. And then gradually as the movie's going along, he's like, Oh gosh, I did. I did. Yeah. He's he's slowly, he's slowly coming. I mean, it's that new year scene that really does it at first where Michael gets the, the drinks for them. And then that, that moment where he says, will you drink mine? Because I can't drink. And, um, there's kind of just the moment you see it in, in Dr. Forrester's eyes where he's like, oh, crap, I built a son. I just spent you know millions of American taxpayers money to build a son that we never had. Yeah. Oh, and dear. You know, he's he's like creating. I don't know what his premise was when he was creating this cyborg, because, you know, they keep telling him is it the administration or like, yeah. you know, the government paid for this. Yeah. But he had he created something kind of out, out of his own. It's more like in a way, maybe like Pinocchio. Yeah, because mm. because I, I was going to say because there's a movie called um, uh, later in the '80s called Psy uh, Warrior Special Combat Unit. Oh, it's just like this film. It's directed by Gianetto De Rossi, 
the special effects guy who did the special effects for like zombie and, and the beyond and, and Fulci films. And it's his directorial debut. And it's basically about an experimental. I think it might be a cyborg. I think it is a cyborg, an experimental who gets loose and who becomes friends with uh, a brother and sister. And the movie is this weird mix of him hanging out with the brother and sister, like on the beach, like making sandcastles or going to amusement parks mixed with scenes of him beating up tons of soldiers. And the thing about the site is, is so he gradually learns to become more human and then he beats up a bunch of people. And the thought I had when I, I was watching Michael was I thought, why did the government, if this is meant to be like something they may use as like a super soldier, I mean, I guess it doesn't matter, but why didn't he make him bigger like Schwarzenegger? Why is he like he's like Don Knotts physique? <laughs> I like that, though. I'll tell you why I think he did that. So I, I I think the aesthetic for David is very important because David Morris was so thin and mm-hmm. lanky that you could almost for me anyway, when I'm watching the movie, like you, once you settle into what he is, it's almost like you could tell that that's metal underneath him. Okay. It's just like these little parts. And it doesn't have to be huge. No, it's it's just it's just the metal workings and then they just put some skin over like whatever that you know superficial skin that they've created for him just to cover up the mechanics. And he even comments on that because uh at the end of the film when uh Dr. Forster goes to hug him, he says please don't because you'll fill the metal. And so I think I think David Morris was was specifically cast not just because he's a great actor but also because it just falls on him. So you just I can it's for me it's easy to see like metal workings underneath. Like I can envision it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So that's why I think he wasn't like a big cyberware. And also Dr. Forster really had no idea why he was creating him. Like the government paid him and it didn't seem like they gave him a lot of information. And so I think he was just making somebody who looked like a person. And Arnold Schwarzenegger, let's face it, does not look like a person. <laughs> you know, he might be a person, maybe. maybe. More like Robert Patrick, I guess. Yeah, or so, yeah. And so I think he was he was trying to make him look like just a human, and uh, that's what he did. Yeah, that's true. I suppose if yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger was looking at the trains and saying, "I like the small." <laughs> That's then, another movie. Uh, then that would have been a different sort of scene. That would have been a great it's, film. Especially when the security guard ran out and tried to stop him. Yeah. Oh, never mind. You can keep the Rubik's Cube, dude. Keep, keep it. Keep it. Keep it. All it's right. all yours. Um, but yeah, so I I feel like I feel like the aesthetics of of Michael played by David Morris really work for me personally mm-hmm. because of that, because of his build. That's my personal thought. But I also think when we've talked about um, made for TV genre movies. I always think that like there's like so much more of an emphasis on character than a theatrical yeah. version because just the, the the schedules and the budgets don't really lend themselves to having the same kind of uh, time and money for special effects and action scenes. And so this really is like kind of pushing it to the extreme as far as it's all about conversation and dialogue about the ideas of a thing like Frankenstein mm-hmm. rather than like, any of the violent payoff that you expect in a story like that. Like it seems really kind of subversive in that way. Cause it's like, if you go in expecting it to be a science fiction horror type thing, there's like almost none of that. Yeah. And that's how it was marketed on DVD. It's, it's like, it, it's made to look like a Terminator and they're like, the yeah. future is not something right. I can't remember the tagline now, but it is awful. And you're like, Oh wow. That's not what this film is at all. No, not at and all. I don't even know why they thought that they would do that because the future is not friendly was the um, 
tagline on the oh, wow. DVD. Then they were watching Psy Warrior, not yeah. A, it looks like a, it looks like it's because they've got this metal skull, like like half of the metal skull is the DVD box, and and you're you think you're getting a Terminator film, and that's what they were like. Oh my! Marketing towards, but interestingly enough, if you look at the reviews on IMDb, a lot of people are like, "Oh, I thought this was going to be a Terminator," but it ended up being a really interesting film about humanity. And you know what I mean? And and so, luckily, mm-hmm. people kind of eased into it better than yeah. I think they based off the horrible marketing. But um, yeah, I feel like the economics of TV did play a part in it. Also, I think Levinson and Link don't always get the credit that they should for the dramas that they did. You know, they like the execution of Private Slovak and um, the pilot to the psychiatrist, uh, you know, Children of the Lotus Eaters is really good. And it's about heroin addiction. And um, I thought of that certain summer also. Weirdly oh, that enough. certain summer. Yeah. Like they, mm. they did a lot of really great dramas and, and their dramas are very thought provoking. And so this is like a really interesting film for them because I don't think they really did a lot of science fiction-y type stuff. There is a Columbo with a robot. Right. There is with yes, uh, there the is. Jose Ferrer or one of the Ferrers. I, right? I maybe I what I, I remember is Robert Walker's in it. He's the younger guy that's in it. But uh, like, it's not their normal thing. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's very normal because there is that that sort of humanness underneath it, and this idea of like this this kind of really beautiful drama that's asking questions and you know uh, interrogating where we are as a species, you know, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. That's what kind of what they did on when they weren't doing Columbo or their mystery movies. So like, um, I feel like this is a really interesting middle ground for them, almost combining the like genre with like their regular drama stuff, you know? So, but you're right. Yeah. Economics do play a part. Like there's like, if you watch any of like the sci-fi, like pilot films from the eighties that they don't look, they they just aren't the same as like a theatrical, like the action, which is interesting because the TV shows were full of stunts at the time. You know what I mean? But I feel like a lot of their pilot movies didn't have that same kind of flavor to them. That's just my opinion, but this is a great film and you guys are stupid. <laughs> can can we talk about the ending? Uh, yes. Yes, I, please. I, oh, oh yeah. So, so in the ending, when um, they realized that the, the, the army and, and the government agents have surrounded them, uh, Michael basically says, let me burn myself to death in the garage and Dr. Forrest, you can go on your way. And that's the way it ends. It's more poignant than that. And it's kind of a little hard. It's heartbreaking. And it's kind of nicely the way they do it because you don't you don't follow Michael. You follow Dr. Forrester. So like the garage door closes behind Michael and you know what he's doing in there. You know, he's paint thinner and all kinds of stuff and he's going to light it up. But you just follow Dr. Forrester as he walks away and then he sits down with the army guys. And as they're talking or doing whatever in the distance, you hear like fire trucks getting closer yeah. and closer. And then they shoot by and they see Dr. Forrester with tears in his eyes. And it's, it's a lovely ending. And um, it actually made me think that. I what I thought was going to happen was it fades to black, I, or it either fades to black or it dissolves to the fire. I forget which. Yeah, I think they do show the fire, I like think, from far um, away. Over the yeah, over the credits. I thought what was going to happen was they were going to like fade out and then fade back in like five years later, and you'd oh. see like a, a similar. Um, uh, space and you'd see Dr. Forrester with like Michael 2.0 or something like that like maybe in his basement or something you know what's interesting is uh, I actually thought of Nate because of his after the credits thing he does on the Stereo continues mm-hmm. because I was thinking about what would happen after the credits and I actually thought of 
Dr. Forrester going home mm. and breaking down in front of his wife. Oh, yeah. And just crying because because he can't really do that. He is doing it to an extent at the end of the film, but he can't really mm-hmm. like he lost his son. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I yeah. picture them sitting on like the edge of the bed and him just like and I thought about that and I was like, I don't know why I'm thinking past the end credits, but <laughs> like this is what I'm picturing all of a sudden. Plus, I need more Francis Sternhagen in my life. Yeah. Yeah. I I was thinking of uh, the 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 sort of like the ending of the movie Rotor, the Robocop ripoff. Oh, where that, that ends rotor's been destroyed and then um and then you see the this the nephew of the guy who created rotor getting all of his uncle's scientific papers everything fades to black and then it fades back up and you see the prototype for rotor 2 and i thought that's what kind of it was going to be like we'd see michael too and and what made me think that was because you know in the frankenstein novel obviously the monster is alive and well in the end on the ice flow yes right and but but there's that that weird moment where Michael says, what? It's not that weird. Where he says, do they destroy him? And Christopher Plummer, he looks at the TV. And to me, watching Christopher Plummer's face, he knows the way the movie ends. And he's seeing the windmill and the monster on fire, you know, in it. And he's thinking they do destroy him. And so he says, "Uh, I I don't know, or whatever it is. He says, or he changes the subject immediately. But the thing about it, of course, is that the Frankenstein movies from Universal, they don't destroy him. They keep trying to, but they don't. So I, I was really hoping he'd look at look at the screen, look at Michael. You know, did they destroy him? No, no, they don't. I was hoping he'd say that because that would have been kind of like a cool moment. And and that's kind of like the way I see Michael. Like he gets destroyed at the end, but I see him coming back. Yeah, and maybe getting destroyed again. You know, but Michael keeps, and maybe he saves the brain or is able to program it with the same. I can always hope to like, he'll just like pop up the back of his sweater and pop out something. Yes, exactly. You know what I mean? And be like, okay, I'll take this with me and then I can rebuild you. But he doesn't. And I guess, I, I'm guessing that he thinks, well, so they talk a lot about Oppenheimer in this. And so I had to read a little yeah. bit about Oppenheimer because I didn't know that much about him, but he's the father of the atomic bomb. And then he, be, he really came to regret it. And I think that Dr. Forrester is like, we can't have another Michael. Because I can't risk government can't building these like unstoppable killing machines to just go over to these like developing countries and these other places and just kill everybody. Like I can't let them do that. So therefore, when Michael goes, it has to be the prototype has to be destroyed for humanity to continue in the way it should. Do you know what I mean? I kind of feel yeah. like he had to come to terms with that. Yeah. I wonder what if there was if there was a series then if if it had gone that route would it have been Doctor Forrester's Amazing Inventions? It probably would have been like Lucan to be honest. Talking where toast. oh yeah, like yeah. he goes from town to town and they they fix problems, and yeah. every so often they're like, oh, he's a cyborg, really? Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But mostly they just yeah. solve people's problems. Yeah, and, and crimes <laughs> and crimes and murders. <laughs> this became a whole other thing. <laughs> Yeah, no, no TV series for for prototype or Michael. I'm sorry, oh. but he was. I think he was doing Saint Elsewhere at the time, David Morris. So he was, he was already bringing in the books. <laughs> Everything was okay, and I'm sure, I'm sure Christopher Plummer did all right for himself in the '80s. Oh yeah, yeah. It's I, I always like Chris Plummer. He's he's one of my favorite uh, Sherlock Holmes in Murder by Decree, and his final speech in Star Crash 
brings gravitas <sighs> to one of the silliest and stupidest movies of all time. I totally forgot he was in that. And I and I say that with love. I love Star Crash. And his his final speech is just amazing in that. He was great in Knives Out, I thought. Yes, yeah. I think that was his last film or very close to it. I want to say, yeah. Yeah. And he gave us Amanda Plummer. <laughs> True. So, <laughs> got to give him points for that. Um, but anyway, yeah. So, I, I, I guess I'm the outlier here. I think that this is a really tremendous film. I think um, it's probably in my top ten favorite TV movies. Probably. Um, I watch it every few years, but I can't watch it all the time. It's not like bad Ronald or something, you know what I mean? Or dark Knight of the scarecrow. I just, it, it takes too much out of me whenever I watch it. And this last time I watched it, I totally lost it again. It just didn't take me three hours to recoup, you know, like it did the first time. <laughs> like I literally had to watch like, like not use cars. There's another movie that's got a title like <laughs> used cars, the car wash. I had to watch car wash. Oh, car wash. Yeah. Yes. Okay. To get my mind off of it. <laughs> that's you know a great what I mean? One. And like, and I cried the whole time while Car Wash was playing. <laughs> what happened? I don't understand. And, you know, it was very upsetting for everybody. But, um, but I, I just think it's a really beautiful movie. And I think it's like exploring these ideas, ideas about science. But uh, aside from that, I think it's looking at humanity. And, um, and it is a lot like Crawl Space in a lot of ways. Because again, that's a childless couple mm -hmm. who let this man into their life and things don't go right for them. And in here, it's not so much the couple doing it, but it is this idea of like, there's something, there's this gap or void, right? That's that's there. And Michael fills it for Dr. Forrester, um, but with consequences because you can't just decide you want a family and then take this thing that you don't fully understand and, and try to integrate it into your world. Yeah. You know, so they're, they're actually thematically, I think they're very similar. And that Christmas birthing scene thing is going to be stuck with me now. Now I wish I'd, because <laughs> that co conference you were talking about was a Frankenstein conference and I presented crawl space over prototype, but now I feel like I could, I could screen them together and, and do a paper on both of them. If, if there's ever another Frankenstein conference somewhere, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah you should. Yeah. They have a lot of similarities. So it was really, does, I don't know if anybody has anything else to say about it. I don't. I, I wanted to see really what would happen if he went on a date with that gal. I would have loved. And like Christopher Plummer was like hiding in a bush, like Cyrano <laughs> de Bergerac or something. And, and but, but because he's Doctor Forrester there, he's just giving out bad advice. Yes, as he Dr. would. Forrester, yeah. What is love? Oh, we never got that. Maybe if there had been a series. But I do think she was important because I do think he had to like have these little experiences along the way. He really wanted one of the scenes that I love so much is when um, the other doctor, I can't think of his name now, the friend who kind of betrays Dr. Forrester. He doesn't just uh, Dr. Gene Pressman when um, he's there and he's inspecting Michael at the lab and they're feeding him a book. Oh yeah. And he's trying yeah. to tell them he'd like to read a book, like hold it in his hands and actually read the book. And he starts to say it and they totally just walk away from him. Yeah. And start talking about something else. And he tells Dr. Forrester that he wants to read books. So he goes to the bookstore, right, to pick up whatever. And he gets Frankenstein and a bunch of other stuff. But, like, he's being denied these things. It's interesting. Like, he, from the very beginning of the film, he's a very curious character. You know, he's really interested in everything that's going on around him. And at the beginning, he's very much like a little kid because he gets overstimulated, Dr. Forrester says, when he sees the choo-choo trains. And he can't stop talking about them. 
and uh and he wants these things and so like even though the thing with the woman didn't go further there's a thing there that he grows from like he's somehow been given the capacity to grow emotionally and he's kind of interested in her i think yeah because he asks, can and, i and, call her can i just call her yes yes and and when when dr forrester says well you're you're a handsome man of course you'd be interested he's, he's kind of like wow chicks dig me yeah wow. <laughs> yeah like <laughs> this there's this awesome. whole thing but it's really adorable when like they're walking away and he's like mm-hmm. i can't just call her and dr forrester's like no <laughs> You, can't. you know, yeah. There, there's a moment I love too when he's in the department store, and I forget what the exact dialogue is. Where he he's looking at the robots, and they're not that are like marching, but they're like clockwork wind up robots. They're yeah. not actual robots, and he's looking at them, and he's looking really curious. And Doctor Forrester walks by and says something like, "Oh, they're just like wind up. They're just mechanics. You know, they're they're not like real robotic robots. They're just just toys, just toys." You're like, damn it. <laughs> Someone yeah, to talk to. Yeah, I remember the robots being a real trendy kind of toy in the early yes. 80s. And so I feel like it was a comment on that. But I thought like um, some of the stuff you were talking about with like the uh, like the books and, and, and everything. I, I think I think one of the things that's playing around with is just the idea of like a parent trying to control and mold their children and yeah. how like every yeah. time that child is away from him it's being educated with things that he doesn't want the child to know, like whether it be about guns or even poker, you know, like whenever he's away with the military or he's away and like, you know, he's, he, you know, the, uh, the books giving him knowledge that he's not supposed to have. He's learning about sexuality when he's not supposed to be like, uh, you know, growing up away from him. He just wants him to learn, you know, like tell jokes and and go fishing with the artificial bait. Like he doesn't really want to, you know, (laughs) doesn't really want, um, you know, the innocence of the child to be uh, diluted. You know, he talks about it like as it's programming, but he's, you know, basically like trying to have an innocent child. And, and every time he's away from the child, it's like he's that that child is like becoming more experienced about the world. And there's that, that moment when they're walking up the hill and uh, Dr. Forster says something like, Michael, you're the best because you you never speak unless you're spoken to and you never, you always listen or something like that. And I thought, Oh, that sounds like a, that sounds like an adult (laughs) talking down to a kid, you know, a very obedient kid, but Michael doesn't know all. If there had been a scene like where Michael ended up like hanging out with a bunch of thugs or hoodlums or something like that. And he came back with like tattoos or like an earring, Michael, what is that on your ear? Hey dad, all the kids are wearing them. Come on. Could you see, I would love that. Dr. Forrester, what's an STD? (laughs) Dr. Forrester, how come she smells nicer than you do? (laughs) But I mean, he needed those experiences, I think, to get to where he got to at the end, you know, like, like to understand, I guess. This is, this is the best. Well, like, like, I don't know how to word this without sounding totally cheesy, but like you're talking about like those the experiences that he gets that are like behind Dr. Forrester's back that Dr. Forster doesn't want him to have, but that's what makes him a man and ultimately makes him able to make the decisions that he's able to make. You know, it's, it's like, it's like what I was saying, like for him to understand life, he has to also like come to terms with death and that makes him more human than that makes him as human as anybody else that, that he dies, you know, sacrificing himself for his dad, I guess. And yeah, it was also like a big thing to do, but like, yeah, it's just, that's a very poignant film. It's got a lot of questions in there that I'm still asking myself. So sorry, everybody hated it. 
I didn't hate it. I oh, I, I, I no, I didn't hate it. I think it's I I just didn't go like that's why I love Cy Warrior because it's got all the fight scenes. <laughs> in it. Okay, and he does. And at the end of Cy Warrior, spoiler, he he sacrifices himself to save the little boy. It's just like Prototype. It's exactly like Prototype, except with more blood and shooting. Yeah, I, I can see how you could draw the similarities between them. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> does Does anybody have anything else they want to add before I do the background on this one? I don't think so. Yeah. Okay. So, Prototype originally aired on December seventh, nineteen eighty three. So, it is a Christmas film. The more I think about Yay. it, uh, it aired on CBS. It ran against on ABC, Dynasty, and Hotel. Uh, by the way, this movie bombed in the ratings, and I'll get into that in a second. But also, running against Dynasty and Hotel does you no, no favors. Yeah. Ugh, yeah. And on NBC, it ran against NBC News White Paper Journey to the Heart of China, which was a news special with Tom Brokaw. Say that again. NBC News White Paper. Faster. NBC News White Paper. The Journey to China. What was that? Second oh, Journey to the Heart of China. Oh, was that another show? No, that was colon. NBC News oh, White Paper colon Journey to the Heart of China, which was oh. a new special with Tom Brokaw and then an episode of Saint Elsewhere, which David Morris appeared in. So he ran wow. against himself that night. So as I said, it did not do well in the ratings. It came in at number 51 out of 68 programs for the week with a rating share of 11.8 slash 19. Um, Journey to China didn't actually do much better. It came in at number 43. And of course, Dynasty and Hotel were in the top 10. St. Elsewhere was the lowest ranked. So I don't know if St. Elsewhere hadn't taken off yet, but it came in at number 54 that week, which blows my mind because I remember that show being so ridiculously popular. But I think it was a word of mouth thing, maybe. NBC was kind of in the toilet until like 85 with Cosby and such. So I think those, those shows were critically loved. And the people who watch them love them. But I don't know that the ratings were ever huge, huge. I think St. Elsewhere grew, but I'd have to look that up. Yeah, I think it caught on. I don't know if Mark Harmon was always on it or if he joined and that did it. Because I know he became really famous for being on St. Elsewhere. Uh, The production began in May of 1983. At least that's when newspapers started reporting on it. Morris said in interviews he was drawn to the emotional aspects of the script. And after uh, he first read it, he knew he wanted the part but was told that CBS was hoping for a bigger name. He said his agent persisted until he was brought into audition. Um, Also, here's an interesting uh, uh, story from the set. Actor Christopher Plummer, this is from a newspaper, I'm quoting the newspaper. Actor Christopher Plummer tells young actors they must never become bored with what they are playing. Plummer, speaking on the set of the CBS TV movie Prototype, which will air on December 7th, said so many young actors ask him for advice that... Quote, I sometimes feel like an elder statesman. They must never become bored with acting. If you aren't enjoying what you're doing, your audience won't enjoy watching you. No matter the material, remember to keep it fresh in your mind. Never allow boredom or ennui, ennui to sink in your performance, or you'll discover it will sink you with audiences, end quote. Ennui. Wow. I think he said the same thing to David Hasselhoff on the set of Star Crash. I'm positive he did. Damn right. Angel <laughs> Don't ever let Ennui take over, David. <laughs> Please don't. don't. David was already asleep. <laughs> oh, I love David Hasselhoff. I know, I do too. We all do. We Come all on. do. Um, they watch Nights Me. Yes. So apparently, two young women were near the set one day and saw Christopher Plummer nearby sitting in a chair. One approached him, but then went back to a friend and said it wasn't Plummer. The guy in the chair was, quote, too old. 
Plummer told this story uh, and it made him laugh. Huh. So there's actually stories from the set of this film which blew my mind. Uh, the local CBS affiliate uh, in Paddock, Kentucky, preempted prototype to show Miracle on 34th Street. So that might possibly be why some of it didn't do well in the ratings. Um, and around the same time prototype aired, the Museum of Television and Broadcasting held a retrospective on Levinson and Link. Here's some of the reviews. Uh, John O'Connor, the New York Times, said, quote, On paper, it is not the most compelling plot imaginable, but an execution prototype on CBS at 9 o'clock tonight proves to be an uncommonly riveting made-for-television movie. There are two good reasons. The script was written by Richard Levinson and William Link and contributing superb performances. Christopher Plummer plays the scientist and David Morris, the humanoid. And by the way, John O'Connor doesn't like a lot of TV movies, so that was a big deal. Um, Fred Rothenberg of the Associated Press said, no Frankenstein monster or Saturday morning cartoon here. This science fiction personality is so believably human that viewers might want to adopt him. That's because writer, producer, writers, producers, Richard Link and William, well, they got the names wrong. Richard Levinson and William Link, we put that wrong in there. Two of the most acclaimed creators in TV have constructed a credible and significant contemporary story, which offers a moving drama while raising questions about the responsibility of science in the area of manufactured life. So back in 1983, you may remember Women's Wear Daily used to review movies. They wrote, all the capable actors in this piece of nonsense play their roles with such conviction they almost make the story believable, except I found it very difficult to believe that nice Arthur Hill planned anything but good for Michael. That's probably right. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's a weird review, but I really like it. And and uh, Arthur Hill, by the way, plays the main military bad guy. We didn't talk about him too much, but he's great. Sounds like my mother review. So. <laughs> that nice Arthur Hill. Oh, he would never he play a bad that. guy in this movie. I don't believe it. Would you like a lemonade? <laughs> you want some ribbon candy? It'll be come on. It just blew my mind that it was in Women's Wear Daily, but they, I have pulled reviews from their uh, magazine before. So Gail Williams of the Hollywood Reporter wrote, "Quote: Prototype is a poignant contemporary Frankenstein fable featuring Christopher Plummer as a crusty scientist and David Morris as his humanoid creation. It's a low-key, sophisticated telefeature meshing some thought-provoking themes into a whimsical premise. The scenario is more fantasy than credible science fiction, while Morris's sweetly convincing portrayal of the humanoid is." hauntingly touching and entertainingly naive. So Gail Williams thought Plummer showed too much bravado and was more stereotypical than she would have liked, but thought Morris was fantastic in the role. That's all my background. I do have a little feedback that I will read you guys. Oh, that nice movie. Those military boys. They're so helpful. Oh, Would you like a lemonade? Would you you like a lemonade? I'm glad that Christopher Plummer shaved. I didn't like him with the facial no, hair. No, with the facial <laughs> hair. No, he looked much better with the mustache. He looked like my son. <laughs> Do you know my son is a chiropractor? Okay, so. <laughs> All right, so. <laughs> Who knew that the Women's Wear Daily Review would be so. I want a collection of those. I think I'm going to start pulling reviews from their magazine just for fun. Uh, Let me see what else I can find. And now it's time for feedback. So, okay. So here's our feedback. So we heard from Stan Peel, the great Stan Stan. Peel. He wrote, uh, hello. So glad you're doing another episode. Madison was fun, but prototype was more thought provoking than I'd expected. Levinson and Link wrote a moving update to the old scientist versus the military plot and drew a straight line from Frankenstein through Oppenheimer into the complexities of the post-Vietnam early Reagan era. 
It's an odd comparison, but Prototype came out a year after Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, which among other uh, sub-themes addresses the mistrust between science and the military and how funding is the rope that keeps them tied together. It's often surprising to learn how scientific innovation first had a military purpose. I just heard Alan Alda's podcast about women in the development of computer science, and it seems to be the very first programmable electronic computers, ENIAC, was developed during World War II to calculate how it served shell trajectory over long distances, factoring in wind and weather. So really, Christopher Plummer shouldn't have been too surprised. Michael's granddaddy, ENIAC, was in the Army Ordnance Corps. Uh, hope the recording goes well. Stan. Um, and then from Facebook, uh, Dean uh, wrote, I feel like this was on Twitter, not Facebook, uh, wrote, he, meaning David Green, became the archetypal jo uh, jobbing director, but I start counting as an absolute British classic. Odd watching it back to back uh, with the same years of people next door. And I find that both films have narrative themes uh, for the opening credits. Our friend Jeffrey, uh, also on Twitter, said, Of David Green's telefeatures, I especially love his work with Richard Levinson and William Link. In fact, three of my all-time favorite TV movies are Rehearsal for Murder, Guilty Conscience, and Ellery Queen, um, uh, a.k.a. Too Many Suspects. Brad Baylor left a really nice comment on our show um, on Twitter. Uh, he listens to it all the time, and he's actually been re-listening to some episodes, and I just thought that oh, was really you, sweet. Um, he said, We sound like old friends. And he wishes right. we could record every week. And I just thought that was really nice. So that's our feedback. And Yay. now we're just on to promoting ourselves. So, Bill, what do you have going on? Well, I've been uh, co-hosting the Directors Club podcast in the last couple of months. I, I've been Jim Laskowski, who's the, the founder of the show. He and I have been kind of trading back and forth each month. So some months I run it, some months he runs it. And that's been taken up. Uh, a lot of my time. I haven't done my my main show, Supporting Characters, since last year, but uh, I'll probably bring that back later this year. Um, yeah, and other than that, just kind of uh, working on home video stuff that I can't talk about. <laughs> I know, I hate that. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah, yeah you can find my, my shows at the Now Playing Network, uh, Supporting Characters and Directors Club. Yeah, definitely check those out. They're great. Um, Dan? Uh, eventually super train is still, still going strong. Amanda is joining me. Uh, we're discussing Luke Ann, uh, the TV movie, um, chat is up and probably by mid February, the first episode of the year will go up and we're, uh, we're doing Luke Ann. uh, the great Chris and Hawes and myself are concluding our tales of the gold monkey chat. And I will be discussing Gemini man, the great, um, uh, Ben Murphy, uh, invisible man show. Um, and also my Happy Days podcast is still going. My Minute by Minutes are still going, discussing Frankenstein movies and Haunted House movies and werewolf movies. And um, and uh, I'm, I'm still uh, – my, my Henningverse book is still available uh, from Beverly Hills to Hooterville, exploring TV's Henningverse. is still available on Amazon. And I'm uh, it's knee-deep into my next book, which is Doctor Who-related. I just finished um, the 505th episode review uh, the other day. So I've only got about 300 more. Oh so God, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. I'm sure it'll be good, but my God, it's hefty. Yeah. It's, I'm in 1979. So we're going along pretty good. Nate, I have kind of fallen behind on this year. Continues. What have you guys been up to? Uh, covering slasher movies. <laughs> well, I know, but are you doing commentaries or anything? Uh, that you can I announce. I think that all we have done has been announced already. I think. 
We haven't done any recently. Okay. Um. And, uh, yeah. Recently, we've only done like the fan commentaries for Patreon, which oh, that's to right. me, um, I actually kind of prefer. Yeah, I think you have yeah, more freedom, yeah. don't you? Yeah, it's a little more relaxed. Sometimes yeah. I feel a little nervous when we're doing commentaries because I'm I like, what if none of us can think of anything to say? Yeah. yeah, I did a commentary with somebody recently, and um, I don't know if it's going to come out or not, but like they froze in like the middle of a sentence. Oh, no. Oh, they edited it. It was fine. But like it was their first commentary, and... Then they picked up, or I think I said something, and then they started again. Then they were fine, and it was great. But, like, there was just that moment where I wasn't expecting that because they were going so well. And then I think they lost their train of thought or something, and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> and uh, But then it was fine, and, and I think it was fixed. But um, And the commentary was sort of like, um, what do you call it, like a spec commentary? Oh, yeah. That uh, he was doing in the hopes that it'll end up on a release, but they haven't announced a release yet. And they have the commentary. They're just not sure what they're going to use yet if they release the film. So, but, um, but I know what you mean. That's the, that's the only time I can think of it actually happening when you're doing one straight through. Cause uh, like a little look behind the curtain, but Bill and I will sometimes do it in chunks when we do it together. I think you guys and I always just go straight through. We just watch yeah. the movie, but, um, but Bill and I will sometimes uh, record in portions and then he's been, gracious enough to do the editing because editing commentaries blows my mind um <laughs> so it helps in case yeah. there's like a I'll, pause all i can think of you is... go through the entire film uh, more than once yeah well i wasn't <laughs> going to say that but yes yeah well i'm, we have I'm a perfectionist taskmaster i'm trying to be better though <laughs> you're not really a taskmaster but you are a perfectionist but you're not a task <laughs> like working with you is not like getting micromanaged or you know what I mean? Like office based or something, but like it's different than what, what I try to do. I try to do it the way yeah. Justin, Justin just likes to sit down and like one and done. Yeah. And that's the way I, I, I like to do it myself. Yeah. It's just, but those are hard too, because you have to keep mm. going. Yeah. yeah. You know? And so that each one has their own kind of stress. I don't know that there's any way around it, but anyway, so as Nate mentioned, they're, the Hysteria Continues has a Patreon, and it's well worth investing in because they are doing fan commentaries on top of all the other extras that they do, which are sometimes non-horror movies. Like, I, I know you guys did Romy Michelle. You also do, like, best movies from different years, like best horror films from, like, 1992, and you do Fangoria Flashback, which is, like, my favorite, I think, of all your segments. Oh, maybe the best of the year might be my favorite because you guys will talk about movies I haven't thought about in decades, and then I have to go out and see the movie. <laughs> Because I had thought of it. Like, you guys did the one. What's the one that Wes Craven's son made about the guy with the brain that's living in the cave? Mind Rip? Yes. I think Joe picked that one for, like, the best of 1991 or something. And I was like, oh, my God. I haven't seen Mind Ripper since it came out. And (laughs) so I I watched it. It was fun. God, I haven't seen that in forever either. Yeah, so I I like when you guys talk about a lot of movies at once sometimes because it gives me, like, a list of things to, like revisit or discover so mm-hmm. anyway anybody's listening to that uh definitely check out their patreon there's different tiers and you can get different um i think there is anyway you can get different uh, stuff from it and it's well worth it um so i guess all that i have going on here is uh if you check out the new fangoria you'll see i wrote an article about the trailer for the text master three which was like a pretty iconic trailer when it came out and the the editor fangoria was curious about how it got made and it turns out i know the screenwriter and the director of the film 
So I contacted them and they gave me all kinds of information. Even though the director hadn't been hired when they made the teaser trailer, he knew all kinds of stuff about it. And so um, I got a lot of information and I wrote that. So it's on the cover. If you don't subscribe to the magazine and you find it on the newsstand, it's got Megan on the cover. Um, and I was really happy about all of that. That was really fun for me. And I guess the only other thing that's going on is I've kind of started another podcast with my friend Ewan Kant from Vinegar Syndrome. And it's called, well, it's still a working title. We haven't officially named it. Um, it's called the One by One Cast. And it is a slasher podcast. It's, we did Don't Open Till Christmas. And, and we've been talking about wanting to do a podcast for a while. But it kind of came about because we did the commentary for Don't Open Till Christmas for Vinegar Syndrome. And the more we started looking into the film, the more we were kind of falling in love with it. It's a, it's got a crazy production history, which you had pretty much figured out uh, for the most part. And and we kind of started to deep dive into the actors and they all had like these ties to each other in these interesting ways. And Dick Randall was the producer and he's so fascinating. And so we felt like after we did the commentary that we still had a lot of stuff we wanted to talk about. So we recorded this sort of pilot podcast that I put on our feed for this podcast. And I'm going to separate them out when I get a new server. Um, and just to kind of try out uh what we're doing and so we're hoping to get together in the next few weeks so hopefully there'll be this episode will come out and then a few weeks that episode will come out and and i won't announce that film until we we've recorded it but anyway we're excited about it and i think we've already promoted the mood of the wolf commentary haven't we dan not i don't think we mentioned it here but i'll we'll gladly mention it again yeah absolutely so we're great uh, yeah we we got asked to do the commentary for a early 70s TV movie called Moon of the Wolf with David Jansen. It's a really fun film. Mm -hmm. And Dan and I got together and we recorded that. And we uh, this year, the group of us, the podcast, the Made for TV show, did Tarantulas and Deadly Cargo, which was really fun. And, um, and so we're hoping to do more stuff like that. And I know that I'm working with Dan on something that we can't announce. And I'm working with mm -hmm. Bill on something that we can't announce. <laughs> so, so things are happening. Um, and, but most importantly, uh, I don't know how I sound on this one. I know I'm really allergied and, um, and maybe not at the top of my game, but we're hoping to bring this back more regularly. I'd like to do it once a month. I don't know if that's going to be possible with our schedules, but, uh, I've started actually creating, uh, episodes I'd like to cover. So keep an eye out. Thank you for sticking with us all these years, even though I know we've been really sporadic. We really appreciate it. The feedback we get is really lovely. So you can um, contact us at tvmayhempodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at tvmayhempodcast. You can follow us on Facebook at the Made for TV Mayhem Show. And you can follow us on Instagram at Made for TV Mayhem. So uh, I think that's it for us. Uh, hopefully we'll see you guys soon and have a great day or night where, whenever you're listening. Yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, everybody.